Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 86 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dane, joined as always by the co-host Matt Feuerstein. Matt, Ring of Honor got sold. I, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's pretty crazy that, uh, are we owned by Tony Khan now? Or are we still owned by Disney? I just assume everything Disney owns everything. I just, I just think it's pretty fucked up that he bought it right out from under us. We had that deal. You and yeah, me. I know. We were going to buy it. And we were going to make it um, all sad and stuff. We were going to be like <laughs> a bunch of mopey wrestlers being like hypochondriacs and stuff. That's, the, you know, wrestling the way we like it. Um, well, some would argue that Ring of Honor was all sad in its final years. <laughs> they, they didn't even need to do us to do that. We were going to keep it going, you know, keeping true to the spirit of sad wrestling times. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't really know what to say but I uh, about it, but except that CM Punk seems really happy about it. And if he's happy, I'm happy. Yeah, it, it's, you know, it's interesting. I feel like more wrestlers nowadays are into their legacies and things like that than wrestlers of past generations where they were kind of like, I just care about the money and that's, that that's it. And, you know, it did seem like, you know, having that footage, maybe, you know, not owned completely, owned, not having your entire career owned by one company, especially one company that you're maybe not on the best terms with, you know, I imagine means a lot to not just him, but probably a lot of other wrestlers that have Ring of Honor ties. Although, also in that that um, press conference, Punk seemed to also kind of hint at the idea. Also, maybe hoping that you know he and other wrestlers would get paid better residuals, or if, maybe if someone owned Ring of Honor compared to what he gets paid for his WWE footage. Which I, I was wondering. Is nothing. I was wondering if he was sitting next to Tony Khan saying that, if he was like trying to like put him on the spot right then and there, just being like, you know, we expect you to, we expect to get paid for this, right? Like, because like. <laughs> Because I don't think that, you know, of course they should, but like, I don't know if that is the default on these streaming services. I mean, honestly, if he did that, that would probably be one of like the secret biggest parts of the story if he kind of set the precedent for. Because, yeah, like, you, yeah, I mean, I know WWE doesn't really, I don't think they really do that, at least with like footage on the network. If they set a precedent for like, no, you should expect to get paid for work that's being streamed like even if it's some small spotify level amount of money i mean that would probably i I wonder if that would catch on and kind of or who knows maybe someone else is already doing that and i am just ignorant matt so often matt if i could just assume i'm ignorant and i will be correct i mean how are you going to find that information who the hell knows unless you're a wrestler that gets paid exactly you 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 be just as ignorant as you want to be i support your ignorance (laughs) <laughs> clearly that that's more of the sentiment this world needs at a time like this but uh <laughs> what the world needs now okay, <laughs> so we were going to have dr keith on unfortunately he had a hot tub related shenanigans to get to which let's face, <laughs> let's is, is there a time it. is there a time machine involved because that would be amazing <laughs> Let's face it, if um if I had a hot tub, you know, and people to share that hot tub with in my future, this show would be a distant memory. But Keith is going back in time to um uh, I don't know, I was gonna say something pretty tasteless, so never mind. <laughs> Think about a tasteless wrestling thing that I that I could be like, he was gonna go warn such and such, but I can't I, I can't make jokes about such things. But uh 
Keith was nice enough to include a little clip of his thoughts about this show, while more about a, a segment that happens around the end of the show. So we're actually going to put that right in after the show is done because he actually – it worked out perfectly because there was actually one little bit we'll get to at the very end of the show, one of those things that happened off camera that I was like, oh, I have no, nothing more to really report on this other than this little news story that it happened. And then Keith adds a little more color to that. So – he will appear at the end of the show, and we will catch up with him again one day in the future, two ships passing in the night. But if you want to listen to past Dr. Keith appearances, along with all of our great guests and Matt and I, too, we're, we're, we're also there on every episode. Uh, there's three ways, as always, that you can listen to us at Through the Years. We're, you're listening to one of these, unless someone is just playing this to you. They dubbed it on a cassette tape, which would be really weird, but kind of neat. Um, you're either listening to us on the Through the Years feed, which is just T-H-R-O-H, which is just our show. The easiest way to access our complete, at this point, depressingly extensive archives of shows. Or you might be listening to us on the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network, which is our show. It's hard to get to our archives because the, their archives only go back so far. But you get a whole bunch of other great shows sprinkled in. So instead of just having a feed that gets updated once every two to three weeks, you're getting shows all the time, really good shows. And then... If you just like to listen to things in browsers, and who doesn't, we're on YouTube. That's where we actually get nice comments. I always feel bad because a lot of times I'll see a nice comment like right before I'm going to bed for some reason. And I'll be like, oh, I should log in and like respond to that comment. And then I'll fall asleep and forget to do so. And then I'll start feeling, would it be weird to respond to this like days after the fact? And then I just don't. But It would not be weird, Trevor. (laughs) You could respond to it months after the fact and it would be fine. Just letting you know. I just want everyone that listens on YouTube and that posts nice comments to know those things really make my day. I appreciate it. Our YouTube listeners are our nicest listeners. The deep vein from YouTubes. (laughs) That's your name. (laughs) Matt, they just get – I hope that if this show continues for another five years, I can't wait to see how ridiculous – those those deep vein thrombozo puns can possibly get. Um. When with the but, new, te- you mean with like new technologies, like the deep vein thrum streamed into your brain stems, like like that, because that's how, that's how we're going to hear things in the future. They're just going to go right into our brains. It's not even going to. There's not going to be any sort of like media or hardware that we need. Finally, I don't have to. I keep worrying. Honestly, I do probably go through like three or four pairs of cheap earbuds every uh. Or earbuds, not earbuds, every uh, every year. So <laughs> earbuds. I just thought of that. You, yeah, you you just you just like you're just using up these dogs and throwing them out. There is a grisly pile of talented golden retrievers in my basement. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I used to have uh, a, I used to have a joke. I think Airbud came out when I was like 15, and I I, I I had this idea like when I just like this was a joke that a 15 year old made, where that like in the uh, in the build up to Airbud. They would they would rename the they would rename it not Airbud but Sex the Movie and they wouldn't reveal what the movie was and they would just be like Sex the Movie is coming this summer and then when it finally comes out it's just literally Airbud but it's just called Sex the Movie. <laughs> that that is some good marketing, but <laughs> it would I mean people would be excited if it was like a mysterious movie called Sex the Movie, especially back in the nineties. You know, so, people didn't know what sex was back then. I still don't, but they didn't back then either. <laughs> you still don't, Matt. Nope. I was going to say I could teach you, but that sounds weird. <laughs> could you? That would be great. Uh, I, 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 Quite frankly, I need a refresher too. It's been a while. Um, but, Matt, let's uh, 
<laughs> let's go finally to Ring of Honor. The the reason maybe we don't know what sex is. Let's go to the show we're covering today. And that would be Vendetta, which took place November 5th, 2005, at the Frontier Fieldhouse in Chicago Ridge, Illinois, in front of a reported crowd of 900 fans. Uh, Dave Meltzer would write in The Observer, that number was impressive because the crowd stayed at the same level, even though the last shows have included Matt Hardy and CM Punk's Ring of Honor Farewell. So, yeah, when you think of it that way, like, it is very impressive, actually, because on paper, you know, this is a solid-looking card, but it does not look like, hey, this is the final of Matt Hardy's three Ring of Honor matches and CM Punk's final Ring of Honor match. And to draw the same crowd, I mean, clearly, I guess, fans liked what they had seen on the last show, or Ring of Honor was just growing at this time. Ring of Honor mania running wild, Matt. Yeah, I think that's a part of it. I mean, you know, I think, you know, Ring of Honor was pretty hot at that point. I mean, it had just had a lot of buzz from Joe versus Kobashi, although I'm not sure if it was out on DVD yet at this point, or if it was maybe coming out that weekend or what. But I was going to say... um TNA was on TV at this point. It had just gone on TV a month earlier. And so you had Samoa Joe and AJ Styles and Christopher Daniels as TV stars now. So that might have made a difference too. Yeah, that, that, that's a good point. And I think when I was reading an issue of all things Figure Four Weekly to try and find more any kind of notes I could for this show, I think Brian Alvarez wrote in the issue that covered this show that Joe versus Kobashi was about to come out on DVD. So uh, we were, I think we were, no one had seen it yet, but we were right on the cusp. Although, wasn't there also a thing where like Joe versus Kobashi aired first in Japan and then that leaked on like YouTube and stuff? Because if I remember correctly, Joe versus Kobashi, I I believe I saw that like on a Japanese commentary feed on just a video site before I ever got my hands on the DVD. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely did leak. I'm not sure how many people saw it. I w- I'm not going to say – I don't think YouTube was the place where it was primarily disseminated. Yeah, because, it might have been somewhere else. Because YouTube was like so brand new at this point. Like I didn't even – I don't even think I knew what it was by like the time that this show happened. Like I, I know 2000, late 2005 was when I first heard of it, but mm-hmm. I don't know if it was quite at this point. Nothing. Oh God! I, I, every episode, something happens that makes me feel old, and that is that is tonight's episode. Hopefully, the only thing. The <laughs> idea that like we were around like at the genesis of YouTube. There are people that are getting to be fairly grown up that are like can't imagine a world pre YouTube. And Matt, we lived in it for a fair number of years. But that's true. Um, we opened the DVD with uh, Brian Danielson backstage with Dave Prezak. Dave asks Brian for his thoughts on what Roderick Strong said the night before at the end of the last show in his backstage promo. Danielson basically says almost exactly what Roderick Strong says, which is just, I'm going to do my talking tonight in the ring. So basically a mirror image of the Roderick Strong promo, which was probably the point and barely a promo at all. Yeah. I mean, it was what it needed to be, I think. Yeah. And, uh, then before we get to the matches, there was two dark matches on the show that did not air on the DVD. The first would be a tag match. Bobby and Derek Dempsey defeated Brad Bradley and Darren Wade. Uh, for a second, I couldn't figure out who Darren Wade was, but then I found a Chris Vetter live report. He wrote for the Pro Wrestling Torch. He would send in live reports, and he wrote, I was told that Darren came from Ace Steel's training camp. So that makes a lot of sense, being that they were in Chicago. Steel was working this show. Uh, safe to say, uh, Darren Wade, not as well remembered in, in the pantheon of, uh, A Steel students as CM Punk or Cole Cabana, but, uh, 
There we go. And then the other match, more notable, would be Lacey defeating Sarah Del Rey. I believe this was Sarah Del Rey's first ever match for Ring of Honor in any form. And obviously she would become a bigger part of Ring of Honor in the coming years. And to this day works in WWE with the women. And I, I imagine she was, I, I'm pretty sure she was on the Shimmer shows the next night. Cause again, remember they were taping Shimmer in Chicago, the very first two Shimmer shows the, the night after the show. So we got some more women on Ring of Honor, even if they were not on the DVD. But that brings us to the first match we did see on the DVD, and that would be Ace Steel and Delirious defeating Chad Collier and Nigel McGuinness in 9 minutes, 14 seconds. When Steel pinned Nigel after what I can only describe as an accidental chair shot, he was rearing, Ace was rearing back with his chair, going, trying to hit his hated new rival, Chad Collier. But he swung back so far, he hit Nigel, who was behind him with the chair, Chad Collier escapes to the outside, and then Ace is just like, uh, this guy's unconscious. I guess I'll pin him. So, uh, Matt, this was the first confrontation Ace Steel and, uh, Collier had since that match on Punk the Final Chapter. The last time they were in Chicago, where, uh, Collier brained, uh, Steel and made him bleed buckets. And this, I guess, was the first chapter in the feud after that. What'd you think about the match? Well, First of all, they really love putting Delirious in opening matches in the Midwest, don't they? He's like, yeah. they just they, their favorite way to start Midwest shows is having Delirious run around the ring like a wacko when the uh, when the bell rings. But I guess I can't blame them. It, people it gets over with pretty much every crowd. Um, one of the most entertaining parts of the match was Nigel and Collier on the way to the ring. I thought, like Collier, he was he's like Nigel's the pure wrestling champion, and I'm the pure wrestling champion, which I think is a pretty good line. And also, when Nigel is doing his whole thing where he like you know slides into the ring like by lifting his butt up, you know that thing he does, mm-hmm. he goes check out the os, the os. Like, <laughs> so I enjoyed that. Um, he should do that more often. Um, as far as the match, like. I don't know. I mean, they're, they're, they tried to really put a lot of heat on this Collier and Ace Steel feud. And knowing that they won't get back to it for a couple months now after this, I feel like they didn't do that much with it. It's a lot of just Collier, you know, trying to avoid getting beat up by Steel, right? Like, that's just kind of what it is. And it, it never really gets that intense. Um, so this is a real slow burn feud. And I feel like maybe the, the real intense Ace Steel promo should have come a little bit later than this when they actually got to have a match with each other and, like, do stuff. As it is, um, you know, I mean, it's fine. Uh, Delirious does his, does, you know, some of his comedy stuff. He does, he, he breaks a wrist lock by putting, uh, his hand in his mouth and then putting his wet hand in Nigel's face. And he does the endless corner clothesline, which feels longer than Kobashi's machine gum chops. I will say that. It does prompt a holy shit chant, though. I think um, there, there, someone did the counting. I think it was in the 50. It, it was somewhere above 50, the number of co- consecutive corner clotheslines he did. I think it was at least like a minute straight of it. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot, um, which is fine. The crowd isn't super hot for it, but Ace does encourage them and like gets them, gets them to clap for Delirious. Um, you know, it's a lot. It's a lot of call you're running away and... Uh, it's. I think the storyline is fine, um, but I don't really see how they get a lot of momentum when there's like you know Collier's not on and Ace Steel are not on most of the shows because most of the shows are out east. And it is also weird to pin the pure champion with a from a guy that's never going to get a pure title shot. But you know, I guess you know it was with a chair, so it's not really hurting Nigel at all. Um, I don't know. I didn't really feel strongly about this one way or the other. 
Uh, I probably like this a little more than you. I think this is one of those matches that if I watched it with the sound off with no context, I would probably be more what you're thinking or even a little bit lower because I think this match is no, nothing special that way. I don't really think it's special with the sound and context, but I think it's slightly above average. I, I enjoyed this well enough. It's this crowd. I thought on this night, right from the start, this was a very good crowd and maybe there were certain moments they were not quite into by thought they were really into, um, you know, basically most of the things on this show, they were really into for the most part, delirious comedy, which, you know, always makes the show more fun when the crowd's just into stuff, especially if it's stuff you as a regular viewer see, sees all the time. I think they were, you know, they were even kind of getting on Nigel's case and actually booing him and, you know, chanting against him at one point. And so that made it more fun to, for me. And I actually did like the slow burn um, stuff with a- with Ace and Chad, even though I-, I completely get your point, which is it's probably would be would fit better if this was like a promotion doing weekly TV and these guys were developing the feud regularly, as opposed to you wait months for like the next match and like you said, Ace cuts an intense promo a show or two ago, and then you get a very slow burn delayed match but i did appreciate like they did that kind of classic story of the heel is just constantly avoiding the face and they really tease it the the entire way they don't give you what you want i mean collier is always avoiding ace he's only tagging into attack ace when ace is hurt at the very end of the match, you know, Ace brings the chair to the ring at the start of the match, and he finally goes to use it, like I mentioned, at the end of the match, and Collier runs away and lives to fight another day. And I, like, one of my favorite spots in the match was just this little thing where, um, uh, Ace is wrestling Nigel, and Ace has Nigel in some hold or something, and he takes his eye off the ball, he goes to yell at Chad, and on, who's standing on the apron, and Nigel, gets control back at that moment because Ace is distracted and you hear Nigel just just yell at Ace as he's like attacking Ace he, he yells watch me he says and I just I just little things like that like they're not huge things but I just like little minor sensical logical things like that uh, are nice but overall nothing special but I, I kind of appreciate just kind of old school simple wrestling storytelling like that and, uh, yeah, that's, a, that's about it though. So, um, next we, uh, we join Homicide and Julius Smokes backstage. Homicide says Colt Cabana isn't here and there's a big rumor he's hurt. Uh, Smokes calls him the ice cream man. He's soft. Homicide says his back is hurt for going through the table off the bleachers last night in that big superplex spot. He is still mad at Colt for doing a rap on him and using his shoot name, which I thought was really weird for Homicide to bring up. Like, that's why he's so mad, because a show or two ago, we just saw him cut a promo where he gave away his full shoot name, whereas we talked about technically isn't his shoot name, but he kind of presented it as his shoot name completely voluntarily. So it's like, oh, oh, um. Colt did in that rap was say your first name. You went out and gave what was apparently your supposed to be your last name too, and your first name again. But anyway, um, Homicide then is talks about how pissed he is again that Colt brought Steve Carino back to Ring of Honor, his hated arch nemesis. He says he thinks Colt th- he's he says Colt thinks this is all some kind of comedy. Then he says three company instead of three's company and he calls then he says to says in this promo this just made me laugh he goes jack tripper has nothing on me and uh 
Homicide says tonight isn't going to be what the smart marks call a professional wrestling match. It's a fight, one where he'll end Colt Cabana's career and maybe his life. And then Homicide guarantees a 187 tonight. So he quickly goes from considering maybe to kill Colt to guaranteeing it. And then Julius smokes barks a lot. So this is one of those promos, as always, where um, Homicide is not really good at cutting promos. But he's great at being homicide, so your enjoyment of this will be based on that, I believe. Uh, Matt, I love homicide's data references, uh, and him and Smokes together, because there was a recent show, I think he did on more than one show, where Smokes would call Colt Cabana Joe Piscopo, and now homicide is, is referencing Three's company and Jack Tripper, like, this is the second time he called Cabana Jack Tripper, and I love it every single time. I, I just, it's my, my favorite. I, I think it's, I, you know what? That's a great thing to aspire to be if you're going to be a wacky, comedic guy. Uh, I think I think that's a great compliment to Colt Cabana, actually, if he's calling him anything related to John Ritter. But um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, this is a um, this is a very um, a very wacky promo. It's it's like it was confusing in all the best ways because you know, like it is homicide, just being homicide, like you said, like just the, just the, the very beginning when he was like Cabana, like Cabana's not here, and I'm just like, wait. Because because I was confused for a second because I was like maybe he wasn't I didn't like look up the results before I watched the the, the show so I was like mm-hmm. wait what was the match like and I realized like they were scheduled to have a match against each other and obviously Cabana was there and they never made any mention of the fact that he might not be so for so when when Homicide first said that I was like oh he's not so I wonder who's Homicide's wrestling like and, and but it, no it was just Homicide saying something wacky for no reason um, yeah I enjoyed this very much even though it was probably technically bad. <laughs> what would be the equivalent of a wrestler referencing like three's company on a show today? Like some, if you re- I don't know, like if, if a wrestler today was just like, yo, you're suddenly Susan. Like, yeah, yeah, no, I would say, yeah, something like that. Like, um, like the Drew Carey show or like, <laughs> or I was going to say Will and Grace, but that came back. Maybe Frazier. What you like? You're Niles over here. Niles Crane. <laughs> I mean, there is the Undertaker is Frasier meme that is yeah, very so delightful. <laughs> so. Sure, but even even that meme is probably like ten years old now. God, we're <laughs> we're old. <laughs> but uh, that brings us to Jimmy Jacobs scored to the ring by Lacey, defeating Sal Renaro via pinfall in eleven minutes four seconds after he hit the contra code. Um, I like this match more than I expected. I thought this was like a high above average to a low good, and I wasn't really – not that I dis- I like both these guys, but I wasn't really expecting anything from a second on the card, just random match between these two. I thought this was another match like the first one that had like a very over big goofy personality, this time in Jacobs instead of uh, Delirious. We're always talking on through the years about from t- – from, at least from time to time, maybe not always, about how – you know, there was this misconception that a lot of people had of early Ring of Honor that was very – it was always self-serious. It was always plain Jane meat and potatoes, and there was no characters and no wackiness. But there was actually quite a bit of it, and I think this show is a great example because the first two matches on the show are full of wackiness. They're full of, like, over-the-top heel stooging with Collier and now Jacobs right out of, like, the 1980s. And the crowd on each of these matches is loving it. So, I, I, you know, another thing – show that I can kind of burst that bubble – um, one thing I love about wrestling and what I liked about this match is I love when you feel like stories are being developed on the fly. Like I love the interaction between wrestlers and fans where the wrestlers do something, 
the fans react, and you can almost you get the impression whether you're right or not that the wrestlers are like, oh, they really like that. Okay, we'll we'll do more of it. We'll shift the match because they like that. And I felt like whether this was all in the works or not, I kind of got that impression in this match. Um, there's a spot early on where uh, it's a funny spot where Jacobs goes for an atomic drop, and the whole joke is he's too short. So um, when he drops uh, Sal down, Sal's butt doesn't even reach uh, Jacob's knee. Everyone laughs. Then Jacobs repeats the spot, actually hits it this time. And then later on, all of a sudden, then Sal, you know, they do the spot the other with Sal. And then Sal ends up doing a whole bunch of atomic drops in this match, including, like, these big ones. I don't know if I've ever seen this before, where, like, he does a big running one, where after he hits it, Jacobs then bumps over the top rope to the floor. He does another running one where Jacobs takes a bump from an atomic drop over the guardrail, like, into the first two rows of the crowd. Like, just wacky, again, wacky, fun stuff. And then, likewise... As the match goes on, um, you know, this is, again, a really good crowd. They're really into hussing. And Jimmy Jacobs, despite the fact that on the very previous show, he came out in all his old gear, hussing, uh, hussing the fool, Matt, just hussing nonstop. This match, he can't stand the hussing. And the more the crowd does, it feels like they really turned that into a big thread in the match because – Jacobs really in, leans into it. He starts yelling at the crowd to shut up. Sal starts hussing, you know, getting the crowd to huss. And by the second half of this match, they've leaned into it so much that, like, there really isn't a move Jacobs can do in the second half of the match that the crowd isn't hussing for, to his dismay. Again, weird considering, you know, how uh, abrupt a change this was from the very night before. But, again, all this just kind of lends to the vibe that, like, this was kind of a match where they were just giving, taking what the crowd, um, you know, gave them and they were just doing more of whatever the crowd wanted. And I also just think the final thing I'll say is, uh, you know, I, I mentioned a lot with Jimmy Jacobs because he was such a small guy on this roster. A lot of the times it, when wrestlers that were normally also small guys that were used to playing the underdogs wrestled Jacobs, they seem to have a lot of fun. Like, Oh, I don't have to be the underdog for once. And I felt like this was one of Salisbury performances. Cause especially in the first half of the match, he's more in control and kind of, you know, taking it to his opponent in a way he usually hasn't been allowed to in ring of honor so far. Usually he's kind of playing the Jacobs role. And I thought he looked really good doing it. And then they have a nice moment in the middle of the match where, um, Jacobs shoves Sal off the top, turnbuckle and he and sal takes a big bump in, into the chest first into the barricade and from there they use that as a real smooth transition point where jacobs gets to take over for a period of time and he works on nothing but uh sal's midsection and i just thought you know again it was not an amazing match but it was just a fun enough like match that again the story made sense and the crowd was into it and i enjoyed it i think the deal with the hussing was it's like and like where you could sort of make it make sense, like and make it compatible with what happened the night before, which is that like it was Lacey that really was anti-hussing, and Jacobs was trying to be a good soldier for Lacey because when she came out, you could hear her screaming at the crowd, "There will be no hussing tonight." Yeah. So I think that's really what it was. It's not so much that Jacob personally hates the hussing; it's that Jacobs wants to impress Lacey and wants to make her proud. And so, like once she started getting down on the hussing, he was like, "All right, no hussing, no hussing." You know, the, some, I think that's really what what they were going for. Um, and they did try to explain the lack of hussing the night before. We mentioned on that show where Prezak said, you know, he was bringing back his Detroit roots since they were in his hometown. He was bringing back his old stuff. But it's still, when you watch these shows back to back. It is a little weird that they don't even really acknowledge like that the, the very night before 
he was totally into hussing and wearing right. the furry boots. Like it wasn't part of the continuity, right? Like yeah. it just didn't count. Like, yeah. um, uh, as far as the match, um, I don't, I, I, so I liked the comedy stuff at the, in the early going, but as it went on, I feel like I, I, it didn't, I didn't enjoy it as much. Like, as, like I like the early atomic drop stuff. I didn't really love how much of the match revolved around that. And I guess part of the reason is that like, I got the sense that these two could have had a really good, like more normal match, like more competitive match that was less built around the comedy. Um, I do think the match did a good job establishing Jacob's character transition and the development of his new character. And I think that's important and good. Um, but I really felt like, like Renara, like you said, was doing a, a really good job here. And I feel like if they had just kind of let them loose a little bit and kind of, I don't know, transitioned away from the comedy after maybe like five or seven minutes, it would have been better. They never really fully did that though. They, they, they kind of still kept going back to the character stuff, which I can, I can understand why that would appeal to you and others, but I, I think that it was a little bit of a missed opportunity for them to show some, cause you know, it is ROH still. Um, so, you know, there was one moment where, um, at, with the Huss stuff where Jacobs goes, that's not funny anymore. And I was like, you know, I kind of also think it was not funny anymore. <laughs> um, but like, you know, they, they kept doing it. They did this, like, they do this really exaggerated flare flop at one point, which the crowd does enjoy. So I can't really say that they shouldn't have done, done it how they did it, but it didn't connect with me the way that it connected with you. I do think that they both look good though. And I think they're, you know, I, I, you know, it made me wonder, you know, what could have been with Sal? Cause they, they really didn't do that much with him. You know, he, his title reign ends, you know, um, what, um, a month later, month, two months later, less than two months. And then he comes back for the embassy for a little while, but they never go super far with, with Sal and ROH. And he was promising. Um, so, you know, this is sort of like a, a, a snapshot of time where, it seemed like Sal Renaro might have had some like real potential to become bigger in ROH than he did. See, I get what you're saying about this match because I do agree they probably could have had like a better, more action packed, just action focused, serious wrestling match. I guess why what, what I liked about the first two matches is we've seen a lot of matches in 2005 Ring of Honor undercard matches where they look better on paper than they really are. It feels like they're holding back a bit on the undercard and. I feel like I would rather have matches like the first two matches on the show, which are more character based and got have more comedy that aren't trying that aren't like a toned down version of the best match they could have. Like to me, I either want you to like work a serious match to your full potential and try and steal the show or do something completely different. And I, and I feel like I've been used to seeing so many of these kind of half matches where it's kind of just, Again, a serious match, but not them working at like a seven out of ten. That I was like, I'll take this instead, even if it's not the best thing they could absolutely do. I can, I can agree with that. I think I think I, I'm with you on that one. And, and the the other thing you mentioned about you know Jacobs trying to get the crowd to stop. At one point, he tries to almost start like a hush chant. He keeps going hush while they're going hush. <laughs> I just thought there's like an alternate world where world where that is like the the no chant in his Brian Danielson run, you know, when now he's telling, you know, his chant has become a monster he no longer enjoys, and now he's the maybe he could get the crowd to start chanting hush, and then he would start wanting to go back to hus. Like there, there's an alternate world where that is definitely a thing. But if, Bru- if Bruiser Brody had lived and came to WWF like during the Attitude Era, that that would have happened when he turned the heel. 
<laughs> or if there's a promotion that only work, does shows in libraries and Jimmy Jacobs got booked for it, that would be an excellent chant. <laughs> He'd start going, hush, 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 putting his finger to his mouth. That should have been what the, uh, the what Peter Avalon uh, did and, and when he was the librarian. Exactly. <laughs> he should have been like the librarian berserk. He, you know, he should have been Conan the librarian from Weird Al Yankovic's UHF. It's not too late. Tony Khan to bring that gimmick back. Um, Peter Avalon's still there. Um, Leva's still there. So I think that they could do it. And, uh, and, uh, Conan the librarian or, or just, you know, just the, uh, librarian berserker. I think that it works. Also, uh, one little bit of commentary I really liked on this during that atomic drop where, uh, Jimmy takes the bump into the first two rows for, there's one fan who gets so excited that Jimmy is in the crowd, he jumps up and he ta- he's wearing this really weird, like, wide-brimmed hat. He takes it off and he starts wackily gesturing. And Prezak, with maybe just a hint of disdain in his voice, goes, wow, look at that guy. <laughs> I just thought <laughs> that, that, that was a nice little bit of commentary. Um, anyway, uh, ne- next up, we have Ring of Honor. This is, in a weird way, one of my favorite parts of the show. Uh, Ring of Honor Commissioner Jim, and this is a good show. Uh, Ring of Honor Commissioner Jim Cornette makes his way to the ring and he gets a nice reaction. Uh, Jim is happy to see people here as far as the eye can see. Uh, he says the last time he was here, he wasn't so nice to the fans in Chicago and they weren't so nice to him because the last time he was here, that was when he got his butt kicked by one of his heroes, Bobby Heenan, which he calls one of the highlights of his career. He says he talked to Bobby a couple of weeks ago at this time he was recovering from knee replacement surgery and he says Bobby says hello. Uh, Corny then says that Ring of Honor has rejuvenated his love for pro wrestling. We get a fuck Vince chant. Uh, Jim says, ends up moving on and saying he's here to do a live event, but he's also here to film a shoot interview for Ring of Honor with someone. He spends a whole bunch of time putting over this man's credentials before he announces him. He talks about how he paved the way, this man paved the way for Ring of Honor. Jim says this man has been retired from wrestling for quite a while, but they were able to coax him to see a Ring of Honor show. Here he is, Cowboy Bill Watts. Matt, at this point, Bill Watts comes out with a demeanor I can best describe <laughs> as guy trying to be polite when talking to a stranger in a line on the way to doing the thing he actually wants to do. <laughs> I, I would not say he is on a scale of 1 to 10 enthusiasm. He's at a 1, but I would say he's hovering at a 2.5. Like, he is the slightest bit okay with this. Um, <laughs> he's getting paid. <laughs> Yeah. Bill starts talking only for Adam Pierce to come out. And I wrote my notes immediately interrupt him like this was AEW. But as we'll get to in a bit, I, I think this promo was actually edited. That believe it or not, they did not think all of what Bill Watts said was fit for the DVD. Um, but, but also like, could anyone hear what he said anyway? No, the, the, the <laughs> sound in the big frontier field house this whole night, not easily understood. It's, it's bouncing around. You can't but, really hear. But, but I don't blame the sound system for that. Bill Watts, like, was like talking like um I don't know you ever see um Home Star Runner uh, Senor Card Gauge like, <laughs> sort of a sort of actually Orange Cassidy type of character but I um but that's what Bill Watts was talking like here like he was not even trying to project his voice. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, I, I think the, 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 the phrase for the entire night of Bill Watts was not even trying. But um, <laughs> Jim says uh, Adam Pierce isn't even scheduled to wrestle tonight. So, again, they're basically doing the same thing they did the night before. Um, Pierce points out Watts just said a wrestler gets an opportunity if he has the heart. Adam says he has heart, and he wonders why he doesn't have a match tonight. Pierce demands a match. Bill Watts – I wrote my notes at this point. Bill Watts is doing a great impression of a statue until Cornette leaves it up to Watts as if to – to as if as to if Pierce gets a match tonight, Bill says something I can't work out, but it equates to yes, he should have a match tonight. And Pierce then leaves. Watts at this point is already halfway out of the ring. He is so eager to get the fuck home and end this segment that Cornette, who has not done his promo, like walks over to the apron and basically stops Watts from leaving. And he does the rest of his promo standing next to the ropes as Watts just stays standing on the apron. Like, oh, oh, I guess I'll stay here as long as you keep talking to me. I need to watch Um, this. I need to watch this shoot interview now to see like (laughs) just how like how much he seems to really hate doing it. Not that I haven't seen it, so I don't know that that's yeah. It's, but I, I have to imagine, right? I, I, I mean, I have to imagine – I could imagine him being less engaged at, <laughs> during the shoot than he was here. If, if so, <laughs> that will be the shortest shoot interview ever. Um, Cornette at this point says that Bill Watts, Mid-South Wrestling, and Ring of Honor had three things in common. Their wrestlers work harder than anyone else. Their promoters tried their hardest to give the fans their money's worth and then some. And both promotions had the most dedicated, rowdiest fans in wrestling. Cornette thanks Watts and he thanks the fans, telling them they'll have to, to have some fun and he'll see them later. I love so I you- love ROH. I love going to their live. I love to go into their live shows. They did not have the rowdiest fans in professional wrestling history. <laughs> I promise. Um, they had really good crowds sometimes. They were not the rowdiest fan of professional wrestling <laughs> Matt, history. Matt, they rioted three times. Okay. I, I, I'll have you know. <laughs> they, really, every time Homicide picked up a table, they rioted. It was crazy. <laughs> um. So before we give some thoughts about this segment, because I do have some thoughts, uh, there's a couple of live notes. The first is The Observer, and this also is just delightful. Uh, this is Dave writing his from his live report on it. Um, Dave wrote, Nothing much happened with Watts. Jim Cornette introduced him, but he only got a tepid response. He didn't talk like Watts and was instead quiet, putting over Ted DiBiase and Steve Williams as well as Junkyard Dog. Watts' cell phone actually went off in the middle of the promo. Watts gave a speech about Steve Williams and Junkyard Dog, and that was about it. He didn't mention his book, which was originally one of the reasons he was booked for the show. The main reason Watts came in is Ring of Honor filmed a video of Watts and Cornette together telling stories. Watts didn't really understand seeing all the small guys flying around, but he liked Joe, Samoa Joe versus Christopher Daniels a lot. I figured going in that Watts would like Joe, but didn't know how he'd take anyone else. He left after intermission, so didn't see Danielson versus Roderick Strong. He questioned why Delirious threw so many clotheslines in a row in the corner, a Japanese spot, or Nigel McGuinness's headstand in the corner, a British spot. So basically he said everything that you would guess that Bill Watts would say. Is basically what is what happened. Like none of that is even like 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 if you would just ask me if Bill Watts goes to an ROH show in two thousand five, what do you think he's going to say when he sees this? And I'm going to be like, well, he's going to like smell a Joe, and he's going to wonder what all the the little guys are doing. Like right, like that's pretty much yeah. exactly what you would expect. I I love that Bill Watts, you know. You know, he gets brought here. You know, Jim Cornette in that promo is like, you know, we finally convinced him to watch a Ring of Honor show. And he leaves at intermission at intermission before seeing the match that honestly would probably be the one match he would really love out of all of this. Strongly Danielson. If he could get over their size. 
Yeah, exactly. And uh, and the fact that they neither of them ever played college football, as far as I know. Actually, I don't know for <laughs> sure about Roderick Strong, but I don't think Brian Danielson ever played college football. <laughs> the other live report is basically just kind of echoing it, but I just it was Chris Vetter's live report. He wrote, Watts got in the ring and told the story. However, he didn't hold the mic close to his mouth, and he was hard to hear. It sounded like he was rambling, honestly. And yet we should mention, so judging from these live reports, all the stuff that, like, if you watch just the, the DVD, it just seems like Watts is about to start talking. He maybe talks for like 15 seconds and Pierce interrupts. So all the stuff about the stories he tells about, you know, Steve Williams and Ted DiBiase and Junkyard Dog, you know, his cell phone going off. None of that is in it. I quite frankly release the cell phone cut, Gabe. I mean, Tony, you own, I mean, Tony now can do this. Find this footage. I want to see the unedited Bill Watts promo where he is disinterested, mumbling, and his cell phone goes off in the middle of it. I desperately want to see that. Well, now you make now you bring up something that I'm actually curious about. I know this is not what you want to talk about, but like, no, do you think go. they saved all of the raw footage from all these shows? Like the I, unedited, the unedited raw footage. Like, do you think that's still part of the library? Um, I don't know. It's funny because I know from just things we've seen. There have definitely been clips that people have saved of like outtakes from promos, things that we cannot publicly share for a variety of reasons. So definitely like bits and pieces, but I don't know if that was just someone going into it themselves or if there really is just a, a idea of saving everything. Because I, I bet you it's just little bits and pieces people went took upon themselves to save. Because yeah, uh, yeah. and but, back then they probably still had them, but like the, all the all the master tapes. But like now we're talking about what seventeen years later, eight, you know, like who knows. Like, uh, or even think about how, you know, we've talked about on the show how Ring of Honor would always tape with one, um, the, the hard camera and then two handheld cameras at ringside, but they would only ever use one handheld camera because, you know, the Shane Hagedorn on an honorable mention always talked about this is one of his huge pet peeves that they didn't like edit both ha- the footage from both handheld cameras together to get an extra, uh, view but it was just a backup for them and they didn't want to go to the trouble of editing in an extra camera but part of me wonders like are there hard drives somewhere with an entire extra set of um camera angles like could you literally re-edit a bunch of classic ring of honor matches to be perhaps better because you have a whole extra camera worth you know a whole extra three hours from a different angle to, to pick the best shots from. like That would be a really cool premium feature. Like if you like Joe versus Punk series, like three camera edits and stuff, like yeah. that would be something. I, I, I'm I, I'm not getting my hopes up that that's even no, possible. I, I bet you all that stuff, if it was ever saved, is long since forgotten, misplaced, deleted, whatever. But um, for the Bill Watts thing, I'll just say um, – you know, we've talked a lot about Cornette already in his brief tenure as commish where I we I think we both have agreed he's kind of he leans a little bit too much in the history, even though that's a strength. Sometimes he feel he feels a bit more old fuddy duddy than kind of the image Ring of Honor. But sometimes it works. You know, I think like the Midnight Express reunion it worked. This did not work. And and I think what happens is I am all for paying tribute to wrestling's history. I think wrestling does not do enough of it. I really enjoy wrestling history. But I think when you do stuff like bring a legend to um, a, a wrestling promotion, do an appearance like this, they have to fit in the middle circle of a Venn diagram where if the two overlapping circles are legend that's coming to the show, cares that he's cares about the appearance he's making, or at least can pretend that he cares, and fans care 
about the legend that's coming to the show. I feel like you could argue that neither of those circles was represented on this show with Bill Watts when really you need both of them. And I think that's why something like the Midnight Express reunion show worked where I think at least Cornette, you know, I don't know how much every member of the Midnight Express cared about it, but it seemed like on that night, you know, they were happy to be there and it was meaningful that they were finally all in the same ring together. And it seemed like the crowd liked it, was happy and excited enough to see them there where on this night, it seemed like the crowd was mixed at best about seeing Bill Watts and Bill Watts was just there because he was flown in to do a shoot interview. And I guess they decide, Hey, would you like to come out here while you're already in town? This is the only time I can think of where like bringing out this, these legends in ROH went like particularly badly. Like generally speaking, it, go- it- goes well when they do this uh, i guess the other one would be shane douglas yeah i mean that's a different that's at least entertaining yeah, that was bad thing. you know like that's and also it not not well not, the, not the same degree of legend that, either yeah. yeah i was just gonna say it went well for shane until he lied to the crowd and told them that he could have worked ecw one night stand but chose ring of honor over them at which point the crowd immediately called bullshit on him and completely turned on him. But yeah, no, actually, and by the way, when I say not the same degree of legend, I'm not trying to diss Shane Douglas. I'm just saying he was from a much more recent era. That's all. Yeah, I mean, exactly. You know? you know, Jim, I was going to say you, you couldn't kind of promo saying, you know, that like, you know, Shane Douglas paved the way for ring of honor, but in a weird way, I mean, Shane Douglas was a significant part of ECW, which in many ways did pave the way for ring of honor. So for sure, for you, sure. You could go on that limb and, and say that, but uh, either way, we move on to the third match of the show. BJ Whitmer scored to the ring by Lacey, defeated Claudio Castagnoli via pinfall in 9 minutes, 55 seconds after he hit a wrist, wrist clutch exploder. Uh, Matt, I want to know your thoughts on this match. I also thought, did, did it seem weird to you that B, I know they were kind of giving BJ another like little mini push here, but it felt like Claudio was really starting to build some momentum in front of fans. You know, they were really into the hey gimmick he was doing all the time. And he's in the middle of a feud with Nigel where Nigel, after the last time he beats Claudio by cheating, is like, you're going to have to win a bunch of matches if you want to face me again. And then he loses clean here to BJ Whitmer, who isn't really on an incredibly hot trajectory right at this point it was it was a weird result to me um so like i it was a weird result to me um you know thinking in like the the long view of what they what where each of their careers would go but then i was just thinking like what was going on at the time and it's not like claudio was ever like you know it's not like claudio was consistently being pushed on this big level at this point like you're right he, he did get a lot of momentum in october and so you'd think they want to keep it going but they were trying to move bj into a feud with daniels yeah. That, that never really like got going too much. Um, yeah. And BJ ended up being a big part of the CZW feud. So, you know, you could argue BJ was a much bigger deal in ROH for, for at least the first quarter of 2006 than Claudio was. Um, you know, once Claudio turns heel and, and, you know, in the, in, in April and, you know, becomes part, you know, partnered with Hero and, you know, then obviously he clearly supersedes BJ at that point. But I don't think it was so clear cut that, that Claudio uh, was a higher status in terms of the pecking order than BJ was at this point. So it did seem weird, but then I thought about it and it was a little bit less weird. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, as far as the match, um, you know, Claudio does this shtick very 2005 where, you know, he, everyone's into the, Hey, at this point, but then he goes, Hey, and then he points at Lacey and goes, Ho, and gets the crowd to point to do Ho whenever he points at Lacey, which, <laughs> you know, another one of those things that just, it was, tasteless in 2005 and it ages really terribly but 
Prazak, you know, uh, pleasantly de- defies the trend because he says when – instead of saying ho when Claudio points at Lacey, Prazak goes hey and then he goes Lacey, hey, Lacey. So Prazak, you could tell even at the time was not on board with this. Um, you know, and this makes sense. He was starting Shimmer. It would be really weird if he got all excited about calling uh, a woman a hoe, right? Like that yeah. doesn't make sense. Um, there was also a part later, and we've talked about this, where fans start a she's a crack whore chant at Lacey, which, you know, we mentioned this before. It's a completely tasteless and terrible chant at anybody, but like at Lacey, like it defies all logic and is just completely absurd, just like nonsense misogyny. Um, and you know that took the, that whole thing took the match down a bit for me. Um, otherwise, you know, putting that aside, um, the match was fairly hard hitting. There's a lot of crowd interaction early. You know, they do a lot of stuff with wrist lock reversals, where whenever Claudio gets the upper hand, they do a hey each time. And um, and BJ like is arguing with the crowd throughout the entire time that he's controlling. You know, he does a lot of chops. And I'm like, is he trying to steal the thunder from the world title match with all of his chopping? But uh, he doesn't. If he if he is trying to do that, he doesn't succeed. So no worries there. Um, at one point, Claudio does the spinny face plant thing that he does, which I recently saw Anthony Bowens do to Orange Cassidy on Dynamite, and Chris Jericho was in awe of that move. So maybe they should bring in Claudio for uh, because Chris Jericho <laughs> would love that move if he if uh, if Claudio does it. Um, but. Um, Claudio, you know they they get they get into the uh, the big moves near the end. Um, Claudio blocks an exploder, so Whitmer hits a brainbuster. Claudio ducks a clothesline, hits the Apamari water slide, gets a near fall. Claudio goes for the Ricola bomb. Whitmer blocks it, hits an exploder, gets a two count, then hits the wrist clutch and gets a clean three count. Um, I, and like you said, I didn't expect. BJ to get the clean win, but Prezak does note that he has a four-show winning streak, which is noteworthy because he had had a pretty long losing streak before that. So they're definitely trying to build him up at this point. Um, The work was solid, but I thought it was bland. And I know you thought you know this was a good crowd, but I don't think they were particularly into this match. Maybe uh, Bill Watts being asleep put them to sleep. But uh, I didn't think I didn't think other than the A's, I don't think they were super into what was actually happening in the match. It was fine, I guess. It was a fine match, but not I had nothing that I was too excited about. Yeah, I thought this was a decent match. Maybe I liked it slightly more than you, but we're pretty much sympathetical here. Uh, I honestly probably liked uh, Jacobs Renaro more than this, which <clears throat> was a little surprising. I, I, it's, there's nothing wrong with this match. It's just. It's very standard. It's very much two guys trading their signature moves, building up to their biggest ones. There's nothing that really distinguishes it in a way that makes it memorable, except honestly, <clears throat> the uh, the weird ch- the, the chance and the mis- the misogyny and all that that that's what distinguishes that that was the most memorable stuff. Like I have very few notes for this match uh, other than the booking, being surprised that Claudio lost completely clean. This is basically um, what you described like in the last match about like what you prefer the last match to, which is guys just having a match and not trying their hardest. Not that they weren't trying, but you know what I mean? Like they're not going yeah. out there to steal the show. So it's just like a bland version of what these two guys can do. Exactly. And I, and I feel like there there are wrestling promotions in history, you know, especially it feels like a lot more promotions do that this now, where you just do a stack card and you tell everybody go balls to the wall and try and steal the show. And, and if, you know, one match kind of gets cold because they've been burnt, the crowd's been burnt out or, you know, 
just or whatever we accept that we just want every match on the show everyone try as hard as you can do the best you, you can and we won't worry about like show pacing or anything like that and you know pwg i think kind of started to popularize that with their kind of seven match shows where there was really no no indication at all that anyone was holding anything back you could argue that AEW, i mean the recent pay-per-view was very loaded with everyone even on the pre-show you know Going all out, no pun intended. For, not only for could you not only could you argue AEW does that, you couldn't argue that they don't at this point with their pay per views. Yeah, exactly. And but but you know, Ring of Honor, a lot of promotions, you know, over history did the opposite, where it was the idea, you know, WWF for a long time did that. The idea of, and to some degree, still does the idea that you don't want to burn the crowd out before the main event. You want buffer matches. You want all sorts of stuff. And to me, I think either approach can work, but I do think if, like, going back to what I said before, if you want to do a show where it isn't just, we're going to do nothing but kind of go for your throat, like, all out every single match on the show, I really prefer then, like, a show where there's a way to have a show like that without matches like this, where you could have matches like, okay, this match isn't going all out, but it's more based on comedy. This one's more based on just like setting up an angle. This one is more, you know, a different style of match where, you know, maybe it's more like technical, what that isn't about having to go for crazy near falls where, yeah, like going back to what I said earlier, a lot of matches like this one on, on these 2005 ring of honor undercards are more just, you, you're seeing kind of the match that they would be having in the main event just taken down a couple notches and that's less satisfying than just trying to do a completely different kind of match maybe that would not burn out the crowd but wouldn't feel like you were getting a lesser version of something you enjoyed but um by that lo- way, by that logic i can understand why why the jacobs match appealed to you yeah um uh, the other thing I'll mention from this match is BJ Whitmer does Brian Danielson's I Have Till Five, and he's the first of three people on the show who does the I Have Till Five slot, the last one being Brian Danielson. So Brian isn't even the f- second guy on this show to do the I Have Till Five referee spot. But, I mean, he did not invent that, but certainly he was he was bringing it back in style, already paying early dividends from doing it just for a few shows. Um that brings us to Samoa Joe defeating Christopher Daniels, scored to the ring by Allison Danger, via pinfall in 20 minutes, 36 seconds after he hit the muscle buster. Um, Matt, this match reinforced my lifestyle. It just told me I'm doing the right thing because, Matt, my life is all about living with no pressure. You know this from talking to me. I am constantly worried about letting you down, letting people down, not showing up on time, even though I always generally make it, although today I was a few minutes late. Like four, like, like four minutes late, everybody. <laughs> I, I think it was six, but which, Matt, huge difference. Those two minutes, you could have been doing something important. Um, but basically what that means is my life is all about under-promising and over-delivering. I try to set expectations as low as possible when I, so that when I do something good, you're happy and grateful. And when I do something great, you're absolutely amazed. Samoa Joe and Ring of Honor were often about setting the bar at great, about giving you the reason to have consistent high expectations, and then they would usually meet and it surpass them up to a certain period of time. Um, all of this is to say that this match, to me, is on the line between good and very good. I would say maybe like three and a half to three and three core stars, which is a very good wrestling match. And yet... I'm disappointed with it. Like this is this is why I spend my life, Matt, trying not to set 
expectations high because any wrestler should be happy with a match that's nearly four stars. That's as good as this match. That's very enjoyable. And yet I couldn't help but think, you know, these two could have a better match than this. These two have had better matches than this. I would say it's better than the match we saw from these two at Night of the Grudges 2, but it is not as good a, as their uh, Glory by Honor 2 match, in my opinion. Um, what I would say is good and bad about this match is that it's um, it, it feels like a match of these two. If, if, if TNA at this time was a worldwide touring WWE-sized brand and these guys were on a like house show loop together and working each other all over the world five nights a week, I feel like this is the quality house show main event they would probably do move for move for four straight months. Like it's it, everything about it's long enough. There's enough action in it. It, it, you know, it's interesting enough They they hit most of what you would want to see from Daniels and Joe, but it is not their pay-per-view match. There's no real interesting twist or turns. They're not really building, I think on what they've done in the past. It's just like Joe versus Daniels kind of in a can, but in, in, in a good way, but you know, maybe there's a few touches where maybe Joe and Daniels are throwing a few more strikes against each other. Uh, Daniels takes a couple, you know, big hard hits, like one big Joe kick right to the face, like stuff like that. You know, Daniels gets a big near fall on the best moonsault ever. But to me, this really was just kind of like, oh, it's what you would kind of expect is kind of like the, the, the starting point of what you would expect for these two, which is still a a very good match, I would say. Yeah, so this is interesting, because it's like our expectations maybe differ a little bit, because I was pretty bored by the match they had at Night of the Grudges 2, and so I didn't have super high expectations for this, but I thought this was a great match. Like, I... You know, my my rating for this isn't much different from yours. Like, you said you had three and a half, three and three quarters. I'd go four stars, probably. But I'm extremely satisfied with it whereas i think you're fairly disappointed with what you got like i think that's a really that's a like they, they did what they needed to do here they they clearly were working like i i've i've figured out that you know whatever they're um you know whatever they're doing differently in tna versus roh i don't think this is necessarily a deal where they worked less hard here because i do not think they were working i think they were working pretty damn hard here very hard hitting match long um, but they were clearly working intentionally a different style. I think they, in TNA, they were, there was a lot of pressure on them to go really at an accelerated pace doing those X division matches, you know, like boom, 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 a million miles an hour. Um, at least to the degree that they could. Um, but here they're like intentionally being like, okay, we're going to work a slow building wrestling match. And I thought that they did a really good job. I mean, it was, yes, it was slow at the beginning. They were doing a lot of stalling, getting some rest holds. Um, Joe at one point does one of the weirdest drop toe holds I've ever seen. It almost seemed like a botch, but like he immediately followed up with some uh, vicious cross faces. So, uh, there wasn't much time to dwell on that, but it was weird. I couldn't figure out what he was doing there, but you know, then eventually it builds, um, into, and you, and you actually get to see a lot of like Daniel's offense here. Um, there's a nice spot where Daniel's cowers in the corner and tries to keep Joe away with his leg, but Joe just sidesteps it and kicks Daniel's heart in the face and Joe, you know, everyone loves the face wash running boot combo. Uh, and, and, and Daniels is getting, you know, real beat up early. And then he follows up with a drop kick to the knee, basement drop kick. He starts working on Joe's leg a lot. 
um, and does a lot of does a lot of leg holds, and Joe tries to chop his way out, and you can, like it's a hard hitting match. You can see Daniel sweat flying every time. I think that the the best matches on this show, I think, uh, have a commonality that there's they're very hard hitting. The, 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 I can say that about this match and about the title match. Um, and you know, just it's a lot of cool micro targeting of the knee. You know, Joe does his comebacks um, as you might expect. Daniels reverses a roll up into a, into a leg bar. Uh, Daniels actually goes for the figure four, and Joe stops it with a big slap to the face, which I thought was a cool spot. Um, I you know I really I really enjoyed it. Like at the point where Daniels hits the best moonsault ever, the crowd is like heartbroken when Joe kicks out. They really want Daniels to win and, and get that big win. And you know Daniels feels like he's on the cusp of winning. He charges at Joe in the corner, but Joe just lifts him over and crotches him on the top rope, and then quickly hits the muscle buster for the win. So it's sort of like it almost felt like Daniels was just on the cusp of beating him, and he Joe just got lucky at the last minute, which I thought was a good play. I really enjoyed it. I think it, it told a good story. It took the crowd on a ride, and it was it was entertaining for its length. I I, I just I was comparing it with the match from Night of the Grudges, where yeah. I just was like. Ugh. You know, this was this just didn't feel like Joe versus Daniels. This to me felt like Joe versus Daniels. Yes, not the absolute best match they could have. It wasn't as good as Glory by Honor two or their best TNA matches, but this was a damn good match. Yeah, I I, I think you're right. That's all about expectations, and uh, I would clearly like completely agree though. This is significantly better than Night of the Grudges two, and even if it, if it's not Glory by Honor two, but um. Couple notes from the match too. Uh, Dave Prezak gives gives an up, an update during a commentary of this match, saying Homicide will not be allowed to wrestle tonight due to a hip injury he suffered the night before. So that'll come into play very quickly on this show. And uh, th- yet again, they're doing the storyline where it's another scheduled Colt Cabana Homicide match that does not happen, but we get a big brawl instead. And then, um, like you mentioned, I just want to call it out because you mentioned it, and I agree. This was a great. So I love when Daniels is going for that figure four and he literally goes, woo. Yeah, we're going to do it. And he's like turning into the figure four while he's holding the leg. And as he turns, just perfect timing, Joe slaps him right in the face and he just takes one big bump to the ground. And it was just, again, kind of comical, but just great. I just love how it is not nearly as satisfying and fun. If he's not so pumped to put on a figure four where he's just like, woohoo, yeah, and just slap. I love that. But See, like that's just like two pros that know exactly what they're doing and how to build up a spot. Exactly. Like how to milk the most out of that moment. But my favorite moment of this match, Matt, happens after the match. And it might be something only I noticed, but I wrote way too much in my notes about this, but I'm just gonna go through this. So for people that have this show on DVD or a video file somewhere, or maybe eventually Tony Khan will bring it to you. Um, in a fancy three-camera edit. No, just kidding. <laughs> you need the three cameras for this because after the match, for people, look look at this. After the match, you'll see a fan a few throws into the crowd opposite the hard camera. And he throws a little green towel into the ring after the match. And if you watch, you can see him turn to one friend and turn to the other. And he's like talking to him. He's almost going like, should I do it? Should I do it? I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to throw this towel. And he throws the towel in the ring and Joe, a braver man than I, he grabs this strange person's towel that, you know, he did not bring to the ring. He did not, he wasn't, I don't think looking in the direction of the fan. So he doesn't know where this towel comes from. And he just immediately grabs it. 
He uses it to wipe off his sweat. And you can see, if you watch the DVD, you can see the fan. Once Joe uses his towel to wipe off his sweat, this fan jumps for joy in the air as if like this was the greatest moment of his life. He is clapping. He is so happy that Joe used his towel to wipe off some sweat. And then that's Joe how you get, his- That's how you get ringworm, everybody. Don't do it. <laughs> Joe then grabs the bigger white towel he brought to the ring and he threw that he threw on the ring post before the start of the match and then he uses that to wipe off him, himself. And at this point, we get a very abrupt cut to an ad for an FIP DVD. There's a couple of very abrupt cuts on this DVD. That was one of them where I was like, whoa. One, of them, one of them was in the middle of a match. Yeah, uh, very weird. But we come back from the ad and we see – Colt Cabana and Homicide brawling at ringside already in progress. Gabe does his old, his old, the, are we on? Are we on act? And, uh, he says, we're supposed to be going to backstage, inter- inter- backstage interviews with Dave Prazak right now at intermission, but Colt came out to sign autographs during intermission and Homicide jumped him out of nowhere. And that's how we got to this brawl. We see Colt stack two folded chairs together and hit Homicide hard in the head with them. Uh, homicide fights back. He throws a bunch of chairs and Colt into the ring. And then, um, at this point, Gabe tells us that the intermission promos have been canceled. Gabe says he's been fired from the commentary job, but Prezak is backstage for those interviews and Lenny Leonard is in the bathroom. So it's all Gabe here. And in the, I, ring- I love that they, they had to like say that. They're like, Lenny's <laughs> taking a shit. <laughs> In the ring, Homicide and Colt throw chairs at each other. Prezak at this point does join in commentary. He wants to know, like, what's going on? And the bell keeps getting rung by the, you know, the bell ringer at ringside. And Prezak stresses this isn't a match. You know, the match has been canceled. A ref tries to stop them. Homicide chucks the ref out of the ring. Uh, Colt hits Homicide with an ace crusher, you know, one of Homicide's moves, and then goes for the lariat. But Julius Smokes grabs his legs and hits Colt with a chair. Homicide takes Colt out with a lariat of his own. Then Smokes hits Colt with a powerbomb on the ch- on a chair. One of the wackier which, powerbombs you would ever see. Yeah, this this is going to date this podcast immediately, and we normally like this podcast to be evergreen, but I would describe this as a uh, Jake Hager on uh, Eddie Kingston level powerbomb where he almost loses him and you get <laughs> kind of scared. But uh, Homicide then grabs a roll of duct tape. He tapes Colt to the ring ropes. Homicide then brings out the dreaded ghetto fork. It has returned, Matt. And he cuts Colt up with it. He, Colt is now bleeding from the head as Homicide lays into him. And Prezak and Gabe are going crazy on commentary. They're begging for this to stop. Colt then grabs a mic and a pair of scissors. Homicide says if Colt wants to make fun of him, if he wants to do a rap song about him, here's the remix. He and Smokes then go, and it looks like Homicide's going to try to cut Colt's tongue out of his mouth with the scissors. Not only does it look like that, Gabe screams that that's what he's going to do, so that's how we know that it's yeah, definitely it, it, what he was doing. A classic Gabe, you know, <laughs> not since the uh, angle where Homicide tried to take down the tent and Colt screamed, evacuate, have we gotten this level of Colt, Gabe selling. Um a steel comes out. He makes the save, and we get a cut again. Another very abrupt cut because, I, like, Ace and Homicide are just staring at each other in the ring. Like Ace has barely made any kind of save, and Gabe just screams, "Let's get out of here!" And Colt is still attacking. Uh, Smokes is still attacking Colt, and that we just cut to the next match, which we'll get to in a second. But yeah, it's it's just like one of those things where it's like a couple of the editing decisions here made this what was supposed to be this really intense, serious angle into a little bit of comedy between Gabe screaming in general to the let's get out of here and it's like okay so just Ace is standing there and all of a sudden you're sure that the danger is past like that's it we don't need to to see anymore it's like 
yeah, there's just a level of absurdity to some of it that I think undercuts what was supposed to be something pretty intense and serious. Um, the Observer and the live report, Dave wrote, crowd was chanting for CM Punk to make the save. Punk was there, but not part of the show and trying not to be noticed. Homicide had a bad hip and hurt it worse the night before, which is why it went short. So um, this is another, you know, how many times have we seen this now? Is this the third time where they've done a thing where they scheduled a Colt Cabana homicide match and then it doesn't happen. And instead they just have like a lengthy brawl instead. And I would say this was probably the shortest of the brawls they've had, but the most intense and memorable because of the scissors and the blood and the fork. One thing I kind of thought about, and this, and this comes up a few times in the show, but this is one of the times like that's the best example is I'm going to ask you a question about this along with your thoughts on this segment. But I've always talked about how like ring of honor in this era was an episodic product. And Gabe would talk about that, you know, how like every show is like a chapter. And that's one of the reasons I loved Ring of Honor. And one of the things I kind of miss, I feel like a lot of modern indie wrestling isn't episodic this way. But one thing I kind of noticed on this show, just because it was one of those patterns I've seen so often now, is that Ring of Honor wasn't always episodic in the traditional way where, in the way I remembered where it would be like every show a new development happens in, in each angle. You know, it, it's really episodic. Every episode's a little different. I feel a lot of times it was more like an angle would happen and then the same angle would happen like three shows in a row. And then the next start part of the angle would happen. And then they would do that a couple times in a row. And what it what seemed like it was more when you, when I started to think about it was more like um, territory era wrestling where, you know, territories would run a loop. You would run the same five cities. One, one each would get its own day. You know, every week. So maybe if you were in Memphis, you would do Memphis one on Fridays. Then on Saturdays, you'd be in Chattanooga. Whatever. You know, you would run the loop. And what you would do is you would do the same matches and the same angles in each town all five nights that week. So you would do the same exact angle and match in Memphis. Then the next night in Chattanooga, you do the exact same thing. So each town would get a chance to see it. And then only once the next week started, would each town get the next step in the story. And part of me wonders, was ring of honor kind of doing that intentionally with stuff like this? Or like, remember when the riots happened, you know, they did the ring of honor riot, and then they immediately did it two more times in two of their other major markets. And we talked about how it came off way worse. It made it the whole thing seem even faker when the first one did kind of have a slight air of mystery to it. And I've seen this so often now with Ring of Honor, even like the the Adam Pierce thing on this show where Adam Pierce comes out and says, you know, big interrupts a Jim Cornette promo because he wants a match. The Then that happened the last show. The very next night, they just repeat the whole angle again. And part of me wonders, was this just Gabe not really consciously doing it? He was just stretching out, you know, angles and storylines and repeating things. Or was it consciously th- the thought of maybe them thinking – we're, you know, not everyone is going to be a sicko like Trevor Dan. They're not going to buy every single Ring of Honor DVD. And so if we kind of do it where we do the same angles, like two or three shows in a row, if, if you're a fan that even just picks and chooses shows, let's say you bought Vendetta and you didn't buy, you know, Showdown in Motown, you will still get the basic beats that we're trying to tell in this time. Like, I don't know if that was a conscious decision or not. That, that, what, what do you think about that? It doesn't strike – honestly, it doesn't strike me as conscious as you are making it out to be. Like I think it's more just like they have their idea of when they want these matches to happen 
and the beats and they're not up to it yet. So they're trying yeah. to figure out the way to keep the heat on it in the meantime. Like, I think there's a little bit of that. I know that, you know, Gabe talks about how he likes to book for certain places. Like, you know, obviously they're going to eventually have the big blow off to this feud in Chicago. They wanted to have a big angle in Chicago. Also, of course, it's Cabana's hometown. Um, but, you know, they, they, they do a big angle at final battle. You know, they have a big match at the fourth anniversary in the same place. I think part of it's like that. Um, so I think that's more what it is. Um, like, what are some of like, cause I get what you're saying. I, you mentioned the riots, but what are some of the other angles that you think of where they run the same angle repeatedly? Like, I, 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 I can't think of too many where I would really describe it that way. Well, I think even on this show, like the Adam Pierce thing, or even I guess the Danielson thing is kind of just a, a flip of the Roderick Strong promo, but it, it's the exact same basic kind of promo, which is I'll do my talking in the ring. I, I just feel like a lot of times you'll, or or even later tonight on the same show, you know, BJ Whitmer will basically redo a promo he did one or two shows ago where he interrupts Christopher Daniels. He's like, you know, hey, you know, you you betrayed me. He walks away and Christopher Daniels goes, I didn't betray you. I don't get it. What's, what's, you know, like it's the exact promo basically note for note. And I, and I feel like a lot of times it's not always necessarily major angles, but a lot of times you will basically see the same promo or, or minor thing, or even, you know, again, the homicide cult thing. It, it is now three times at least, I think in a row, it's, they're supposed to have a match. Oh crap, the match got canceled, but now they're out brawling instead. Like it just, and I realized, you know, why they're doing that. They're trying to, like you said, stretch it out to get to a, a major show they want to save the match for. But also, I think they want to create that idea of, you know, it's very chaotic. You, you know, that right. Colt and Homicide, the feud is so heated, they can't even get to a regular match. It, it just always falls apart because they, they just want to destroy each other. Right. But, and, I, and I do think they have their first big match. Like, I know they had wrestled once before, but I think they have their first big match on the next show. Yeah. Um, night of tribute. And, um, you know, I guess you could also argue they're doing something kind of similar with the embassy and generation next where they have, you know, their big brawls in every market be- building up to uh steel cage warfare. But, uh, I guess we can get to that when we get to it. Do you have any other thoughts about just the homicide cult brawl in general? Obviously the, the bigger development, in the storyline is probably the cult promo that comes at the end of the show. But I mean, they did go further here with the blood and with the imagery of, you know, a scissors coming into play. I appreciate the idea, but like I said, on execution with the commentary, the way it was and the weird edit, like I, I thought that kind of hurt. They li- it limited its effectiveness for me. Yeah. Um, that that's sort of how I thought. I mean, it's funny because they do a few different things that you know um, were fairly. I don't know if controversial is the right word at the time, but kind of debated, discussed in terms of presentation because they have the scissors thing here. And then I feel like that gets overshadowed by the Drano thing in Final yeah. Battle, which we'll get to. Um, so, I mean, they're trying to make this different. They're trying to make it like Homicide really is trying to do unspeakable things to Colt Cabana and, you know, turning Cabana into a different person. And I, I don't know. I'm curious to see how that all that stuff holds up uh, now uh, so many years later. But I don't think this thing held up too well, not because the idea was bad, but because – I think there was some production execution stuff that kind of limited its effectiveness for me. This really was the year Ring of Honor went all in on like 
weird, like over the top maiming angles when you think about, cause in like a, I mean, it goes into early 2006 with the Drano, but when you think about, you had the Jimmy Rave cheese grater on CM Punk's stomach tattoo. You had the plastic bag, you know, suffocation angle with Punk and Rave. Now you have, you know, trying to cut your tent with scissors and then we would get, you know, all, you know, in the span of like a, a year's time, the Drano, like that's a, that's four kind of crazy, even though I know others wrestling wrestlers have done the bag suffocation thing. I mean, that's four kind of crazy things in a year span. Um, or five even. Um, so anyway, next up we have coming back from intermission, Adam Pierce defeated Davey Andrews versus pinfall in five minutes, 16 seconds after he hit a pile driver. So this was the match that, um, and uh Cornette got for Pierce after he demanded things. And this is the low point of the show to me. And it's it's not a absolutely terrible match or anything. It's kind of just like a forgettable nothing squash for Pierce with a, a little bit of offense for Andrews. But I felt like there there are three ways a match there are three goals, uh, in my opinion, that a match can achieve on a wrestling show. They can if if it's wrestler A versus wrestler B Either the match can can, can succeed because it gets wrestler A over, it can succeed because it gets wrestler B over, or it can succeed because it's just an entertaining match that makes the show, show more enjoyable. And sometimes a match can accomplish two or three of those goals at the same time. This is a match I feel like it accomplished zero of those goals because Adam Pierce does not come off like get any more over squashing a student, even, even the top ring of our student, the, all the students were treated as like the lowest rung by far of wrestlers in ring of our below, like even the ring crew express. Um, Davy rich, Davy Andrews does not, does not look, um, you know, gain anything in this, you know, he had just won the inaugural, the inaugural, geez, my tongue tied tonight, inaugural, uh, top of the class trophy the night before. And the very next night, he gets, you know, fairly squashed by um, Adam Pierce. And then in terms of a match, I feel like Adam Pierce isn't really suited to squash matches because if you watch this match, you know, what you want to see from a squash is just the guy doing the squashing, hitting a bunch of cool offense, coming off this really dominant and powerful and impressive and winning, you know, re- looking really strong. And in this match, you know, Adam Pierce is just trying to do a lot of his classic kind of 80s somewhat chicken shit heel stuff you know he's begging off you know going into walking away early on from andrews he's you know doing the thumbs to the eyes against the like he's 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 you know he's not treating this like i'm kicking this guy's ass as much as just like i'm having to heal and cheat although he does win clean in the end so i felt like it's it's a forgettable match it's not terrible but it's just a match it it serves it, it serves no end match in my Matt in my my opinion. I would agree to the point where you've already talked much more about this match than I thought was even possible. So I feel like that's how much that's how what I thought about it. Like it was just like felt like nothing to me. It was so basic. It felt like Pierce's offense was it felt like WWF nineteen ninety one squash match, which I feel like is probably what he was going for. You know, except for the one like the high velocity spine buster and the and the Swanton, uh, where, uh, Andrews moved. Um, the, but yeah, no, it was nothing. I, um, I, I, you know, I'm thank goodness for the CZW angle because I don't really know what they were going to end up doing with this version of Adam Pierce, um, without it. Um, I don't know what the idea was. Um, I don't know. Do you feel like there was a lot of promise in this, this particular trajectory for Adam Pierce? No, I mean, 
uh, I mean, th- there is something to the idea of the one guy that is so old school that, like, he kind of, you know, is kind of like, I'm, uh, you know, Ring of Honor. You know, he could have done, like, the modern cornet thing. He could have done the Dan Lambert thing where he just talks about how crappy modern wrestling is and how he's a throwback. Like, that's been done before, and that can work to some degree. But I feel like even when he's working these first few matches, he's kind of caught in the middle between trying to impress Ring of Honor fans and trying to be old school because I think there's a moment that really shows that off in this match. It's my favorite moment in the match where Lenny Laird's on commentary and he's like, you know, he, this is a, clearly a line they've been thinking. I think they've talked about this on multiple Pierce matches already where it's like, you know, Adam Pierce isn't flashy. He's not, you know, he's not going to do anything crazy. He's not going to do a lot of flips. And then right after that, he does the senton bomb and, and, and credit to Lenny Leonard. He acknowledges, he's like, well, I guess, you know, that shows me, but I guess that shows you why Adam Pierce doesn't do those because, you know, Davey Andrews rolled out of the way and, and he, and he crashed and burned on it. But I do feel like, you know, Pierce would throw in a move or two like that in his matches so far that would feel almost ill placed for what he's trying to accomplish. But it was almost like, you know, he's trying to be old school, but he's also kind of like, well, this is a ring of honor crowd. You know, I should do something. And it's yeah. kind of this weird middle ground. It makes sense. He was also, like, you know, again, trying to be relatively comedic, too. Which, you know, I guess maybe that works in terms of, like, building him up until he finally does something, like, really dastardly that's not funny, which I assume was eventually where they were going to build to. Um, did you notice, I'm pretty sure it was Bryce Remberg, Re- excuse me, Bryce Remsburg refereeing this match? Did you notice that? Yeah, I don't know if this was the first Ring of Honor show he ever worked, but yeah, I did notice. I was like, oh, he must, if he ever worked before, it must have been very little because this is one of the first yeah. shows where I really I, I noticed that too I was like oh that's Bryce Remsburg is working the show he appears again in 2006 as the CZW referee yeah. so they don't they don't point him out here luckily or else it would have been very incongruent so I also mentioned this was the show where three people did the I have till five Adam Pierce is the second one to do it so both BJ and Adam Pierce do it before that before uh, it ever gets to them. And I also, one last note is listening to the Honorable Mention podcast, which are always our friends Jeff and Shane. They did an episode on this, so if you want a second perspective, they have a whole episode about this show you can listen to. Uh, Shane mentioned, I think, that he heard afterwards that like uh, Adam Pierce had to tell Davey Andrews early on, like, lighten up, don't hit me so hard. <laughs> and you could definitely tell in these early Davey Andrews matches, or I guess some of these aren't just early Davey Andrews matches, these are like his only matches because he would quickly be out of wrestling. Um, he was chucking leather pretty hard in a lot of these matches. I, I, I could see not wanting to work with a young D.V. Andrews. But um, speaking of hitting hard, uh, Matt, we are finally at not the main event, but in many ways is the main event. Ring of Honor world title match, a rematch from a week earlier. Brian Danielson, the Ring of Honor world champion, successfully defends the title when he defeats Roderick Strong via referee stoppage. In 47 minutes, 24 seconds, due to a bunch of repeated elbows to Roderick Strong's head while he had him trapped in a crucifix position, which is basically, as Brian has admitted this, a well, I, I think you'll read something that alludes to it. But, um, Matt, the floor is yours. What do you think about this match? What do you want to say? I mean... This is this is this is the big one for the show. Yeah, I know I know you loved the uh the one in uh from Connecticut the week before and I thought that was a great match, but like it didn't it didn't put me over the moon in the sense partially because I knew this match was coming up and you know I'm very curious to see how you thought about it cuz like the maybe you maybe you like that one more. I don't know. To me this is an absolute 
classic, this match right here. Brian Danielson versus Roger Strong. This is like one of those matches. Like, this is the match that solidifies the Brian Danielson that we know now. This is the match. This is epic. It takes you on a ride. It's, you know, I mean, if it wasn't for Joe versus Kobashi, I would say this would be my easy choice for 2005 match of the year in ROH. Um, just to me, it's, to me, this is like one of those matches for me. And it's really the first one, you know, Joe versus Kobashi was sort of its own thing. Um, but this is like the first like standard ROH match to really make me feel this way, probably since the 2004 Joe versus Punk matches. Um, this is like, this is Brian Danielson's version of that. Um, because, you know, he's not, he's not wrestling any special guests. There's no title chain. This is just like him as an artist putting together art. And I think, in a lot of ways, it's very similar to the match the week before. Um, where it's different is in just one, one week, like, cause we talked about in the, this means war match, like, he was like, you saw in real time him figuring out this new character that he was gonna be. In a week, he has already perfected this character. And like, if you watch this match, like, it's not like, the character advances so much after this. Like, this is it. Like, this is the character. He's, he's a heel, but so respected that he's not totally a heel, but he's happy to jaw jack with the crowd. He's happy to taunt Roderick Strong. He's happy to very, very minorly stooge and heel a little bit. Um, and just, and, but absolutely happy with being vicious. And so you get this, another hard hitting match. Danielson is, is, you know, is already, his chest is red from the week before. You know, we saw that in the Saban match too. And, you know, that Saban match was totally just to build to this. And, and we get Danielson doing, like, he does some stalling. He gets in the face of fans, but you really get to see Danielson doing his classic dismantling of Roderick Strong. Oh, most of this match is Danielson on offense, just as it was the week before. You know, he's working on his back, pulling at his face. You know, he says he has till five, which, you know, what a copycat. Copying, uh, copying Adam Pierce. Like, what a, what a copycat. And BJ Whitmer. Um, but, um, <laughs> you know, he does, he does the thing where he's doing a lot of chops to strong, but whatever strong chops him back, he runs away. Um, which again, something similar from the week before. And in fact, early on in this one, you could actually see Danielson very early on bleeding from the chest after a few strong chops, like blood dripping down his chest, not just red, but like blood, which, you know, you could, you could just see how much, how much he was willing to suffer for his art that week. Um, but all the strikes, the chops, the European uppercuts, very noticeably hard. And, you know, Danielson is very comfortable with this aggressive attitude. He intersperses some smirks in there as well. And in this match, it's not really split crowd. The crowd is behind Roderick Strong. They want to see that title change. And Danielson, you know, is happy to play into it. Does a mocking Roderick chant at one point. And actually, we get a fourth person who does I Have Till Five because Strong does it in here. Oh, yeah. Yes. You're right. And and that pops the crowd. Even You know, it's funny because that, that was so over, even though it was not so entrenched as a Danielson spot yet. Like, But, like, it, it was so over as, like, a way to um, – as a way to kind of undercut Danielson. So that's, that just shows you how well this character was working, that it was already over before anyone even saw it. At this I point. would have loved if after the match, Danielson went backstage to gave us like, you know what Two you know, first, first, uh, you know, Whitmer did it. Then Pierce did it. Then I do it, which I'm the one who invented that. So I should be able to do it. Then strong is doing, you know, too many people are doing this spot. And then Gabe would just say to him, I have till five, Brian. Yes. Loved it. Um, wah, wah. 
Um, at one point, a fan in the crowd, I think you posted this chance, way to go, Regal! And Danielson, he gets this twinkle in his eye, he grins and he yells, Regal can't lace my boots! Um, <laughs> which, you know, I mean, what a week <laughs> to have that happen. And Bix, uh, David Bixenspan actually pointed out on Twitter, those might literally be Regal's boots. Although, I feel like they're different size men, so maybe not. I don't know. But if not, they're definitely a tribute to him because it's, yes. the, it's those classic kind of maroon tights and matching boots that yes, yes. Regal definitely wore. So yeah, yeah, it makes it. And you can see, tell if you this clip, like Brian's got like this shit-eating grin on face when he says that Regal can't lace his boots. It's almost like he realizes like how fucking ridiculous it is that he's saying that. Yeah, totally. Um, as the match continues, uh, Danielson is, is focused on the back. He tries to get the stronghold on Roderick. Um, they do a fun sequence of reversals with Strong hitting what we now call the sick kick and getting a two count and a holy shit chant, actually. Like, uh, that kick was, was always excellent. Um, Strong at one point tries to fight his way into the stronghold and sort of gets it, but Danielson makes the ropes. And like, this is about the 20 minute mark of this match. And this is really the first time Strong is getting really any extended period of offense. But the Danielson control sequence is not boring at all because he's just so good at playing the crowd. Um, and, but you know, like I said, even at this point, the Strong's offense doesn't go very long. Danielson goes back to the basic backbreakers, like the ones that he was doing against Saban the night before. Just like a bunch of just real classic, by-the-book, old-school backbreakers. And that's just the only kind of backbreaker he does. And he just he just is in his glory every time he does it. He's just so happy and proud of himself. Um, and... You know, he's, he's following Strong around ringside, chopping him along the way. And finally, Strong starts chopping back, body slams Danielson on the ramp. And now he starts having an opening to work on Danielson's back. Um, but Danielson actually, uh, is back on offense pretty quickly, which is actually kind of rare for Danielson to shrug off something like a body, a body slam on the ramp, but doesn't really give us time to dwell on it. Um, they're, they're fighting on the, on the, uh, on the outside, and all of Strong's chops on the floor live up to the Strong's chops hype, <laughs> as in they're all extremely <laughs> hard chops. Um, so they, they keep chopping, they keep fighting, Danielson starts raking the face. At one point, Danielson even works a sleeper hold, which Strong gets out of by dropping Danielson on his head with a back plex and getting a two count. And Danielson actually hits a chop to the back of Strong's head. Um, doesn't seem to phase him, though, at least not at first. Um, they keep doing the backbreaker. Danielson does a bow and arrow. He does a diving headbutt. Uh, again, starts slapping it strong, really cockily, um, backhanded and fronthanded to Strong's face. Uh, he goes for the belly to back off the top, and Strong reverses that into a crossbody. Then Strong goes for his own crossbody, but Danielson catches that into the Fujiwara armbar and the cattle mutilation, which, of course, the crowd is begging Strong not to tap. Um, tries to do the pinning combo. Strong fights that off. Um, Strong gets to the ropes after a second cattle mutilation. And finally, like 33 or 34 minutes into the match, Strong hits his first half Nelson backbreaker. I believe the week before it took him 20 minutes to hit a backbreaker. This time it took him more than 30 minutes to hit a backbreaker. Um, which is just like such incredible restraint to, mm-hmm. to both times to go that long and hold and hold the crowd's interest because that's like such a large part of Strong's offense and he doesn't do it for over half an hour and uh, the crowd goes nuts for it of course and they also go nuts when he gets the stronghold Danielson makes the ropes and the crowd just really wants Strong to win um 
they fight out on the floor again, and Danielson once again reverses the momentum and getting Strong to chase him back into the ring on the way in. He drop kicks Strong off the apron, and then he slows the match back down. He does an Indian deathlock while stomping on Strong's knee. So now Danielson has moved from working on the back to working on the knee, which, you know, sometimes that can feel like uh, inconsistent um, psychology, but with Danielson, it's just like he's just going to break you down. Like yeah. he'll spend a half an hour working on one body part and a half an hour working on another body part, and it's that's all in line with what Danielson does. Um, he does some crazy variations while he's in the Indian deathlock, including one where he has his leg over Strong's neck while pulling back on the arm while the legs are still tied up, which is just crazy and very painful looking, and he is just a master at everything. Um and Strong is now selling like he can barely stand, but Danielson misses a drop kick, and Strong gets another big boot and a clothesline for two. Um, Danielson actually tries to belly to belly Strong to the floor, and he doesn't quite get it, but he doesn't give up. Like, And he just stands on the bottom rope and just pushes and pushes and pushes and just wills Strong to the outside. And that is perseverance, and it's actually very impressive in that he can recover to that degree after a move doesn't go the way you want because, like, that's a move where, you know, the, the botches that really are problematic are the ones where there's cooperation involved. Mm-hmm. And there was there is cooperation on a suplex, but, like, it does make sense. If Danielson wants to get strong to the floor, he'll just be like, nope, you're going to the floor, motherfucker, and he just pushes him to the floor. And I actually – I was actually impressed by that recovery probably more than I would have been with just the actual suplex going right. But maybe I just was so in love with the match that I was willing to forgive the botch. I don't know. Um, well, no, because I, I think a lot of times, like, invention, especially when you're, you've watched as much wrestling as us, you just love those moments. Of, like, it was almost like going back to why, partly why I liked uh, Renaro and Jacobs, just when you feel like they're reacting to things in the moment, you know. Like, they're, they're, they're people that are so good that they can, on the fly, be like, no, I'm just going to work with this. And there aren't too many people who are better at that than Danielson. Yeah. And this was, I mean, it was, it was great. It was, just, and it also just ended up looking cool. And now Strong goes into the guardrail on the way down and he actually blades. So that's another degree of intensity up from the week before where he's, he's bloody. It's not like an in- incredible blade job, but we haven't seen much of Strong bleeding at all. Have we ever seen Strong blade at all at this point in I, ROH? I can't, I can't recall. And certainly he's, again, like you were just saying, like he's not known clearly for blading because it's not, it's not a, the worst blade job I've ever seen, but clearly you look at it and go, oh, that's a guy that – he's not CM Punk. I'll say, for <laughs> no, but but who is, honestly, when yeah. it comes to blading, right? Um, yeah. Danielson hits like so, – so now like Danielson is beating up the bloody Roderick Strong. He hits a no-bridge dragon suplex. He uh, Strong avoids the chicken wing, hits the double knees, and briefly sells the knee afterwards and covers for a two-count. Um and now he puts Danielson on the top rope, hits a superplex off the very top, gets the stronghold. The crowd is going crazy, but Strong collapses because of the knee pain. But he perseveres, goes for the hold again, and Danielson rolls out of it, hits a roaring elbow, and Strong goes down. But Danielson collapses too, but he holds himself up with the ropes, goes for the chicken wing, uh, which Strong gets to the ropes for. And now Danielson finally hits the top rope, uh, belly-to-back superplex, and we get what I think might be our like second This Is Awesome chant in ROH. Um, they showed a lot of restraint waiting to chant that one until this like we're in like past the 40 minute mark. Um, Strong kicks out of this and Danielson goes for the stronghold. Uh, and Strong kicks at Danielson's head, goes and goes for the stronghold himself. So Danielson kicks him back and they trade forearms in the middle of the ring. And Danielson pokes Roderick Strong in the eye, which just, you know, tells you he's not. 
he's not uh, half-assing the heel turn, right? He's he's a heel in this match. Um, not every match that he does, but in this one, definitely. Um, so uh, Danielson takes him down. Strong kicks out. Danielson starts elbowing Strong's head. And the ref starts the match. I think I actually skipped a part. Where so like Strong went for the ha- um, for the half Nelson backbreaker, and and Danielson reversed that into a crucifix pinning combination, which we've actually seen before because AJ Styles actually did that, and he transitioned into the Styles clash at Fate of an Angel and won that way. But this is like the same thing, but instead of going all the way around, he actually does the crucifix pin. Strong kicks out. And that's when Danielson starts doing the elbows to Strong's head, which we've seen Danielson do a million times. Um, it's a signature spot, but this is the very first time he does it. And very quickly, the ref stops the match because Strong is knocked out. So, of course, the crowd doesn't know what to make of it. But it was so brilliantly established and transitioned to that after like a very, very, very short amount of booing, the crowd is immediately appreciate, appreciative. Um, they just they, they start applauding. They applaud Roderick Strong. They're chanting five star match at one point. Like they 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 don't let the strange finish bother them. And I think the finish here is one thing that really another. Well, I think there's a few things that puts this match ahead of the week before. But I think the finish is a big part of it because that finish last week was kind of weird. And like people, you know, even now you we don't totally know what to make of it. This was new and inventive. And brilliant, and like it worked perfectly. It wasn't like it wasn't some weird like okay, what are we trying to do here? It just like it makes sense in the uh, in the context. It's just new, and it was obviously worked so well that it it's something that Danielson still does sometimes to this day. Um, uh, and I feel like it never was done necessarily as uh, um, seamlessly as it was here. Um, yeah, it was just epic. This match was freaking epic. I I mean I think I've said everything I could say about it, but. Um, the only thing I really didn't mention in my, you know, in my preamble was Strong. You know, this match was about Danielson. You know, don't get me wrong, but Strong did such a good job in his role of just being hard hitting, of taking everything Danielson could dish out, and of being a deserving like underdog heroic um, presence. That you know, I think he really, uh, he really did himself a service here too. He really established himself as someone who could have this really long special match and and keep up with somebody as brilliant as Danielson. But this was Danielson's match, just as the week before was, and that's what makes the match special. It's it's Brian Danielson really becoming the character he is now, like completely, and um, and already so far. Uh, in his progress to like being everything that he could be like, not that he doesn't get better after this. He does in a lot of ways, but it's just amazing how fully realized he is here and how he could carry a match like this. So I, I'm very curious to hear what you think. I have a hard time imagining that you will like this match as much as I did. Cause this is like just such a big deal match for me, but very curious to hear your thoughts. I did not like it as much, but like I do have some nitpicks, but first off, let me just say, this is a great, great match i like this better than even like danielson gibson to me this beats that this is and in many ways it is a better version of the match they had a week earlier although i will get into my comparison of that a little bit later and a lot because like you were mentioning there is a lot of similarities between this and the match a week earlier so i imagine a lot of my review is going to kind of echo that but because a lot of the great things about that are what were great about the first match like, I do think it is kind of ironic that this is the match that the first strong Danielson match was on a show called This Means War, because this match feels even more like a war. Um, 
you know, even just the visual by the end of this match, you know, Roddy, who's usually like the cardio master, he's just panting and covered with sweat. Danielson's chest is even more bruised up than it was the week before. It bled at one point, like you mentioned. Like, you just feel the struggle, these two. Like, I feel like there are a lot of matches that feel like um, an athletic competition. There are matches that feel like a brawl. This match just felt like a human struggle. And the thing I love about these Roddy Danielson matches that no other match in Ring of Honor really feels like them in the sense of these two, and I've mentioned it before, the way they work with each other, like so often in wrestling, there, there's there's like, Here's the five to ten minutes of mat work at the start. Here's kind of like the mid-level of the match. And then here's the end where we just trade our big moves back and forth. And if you watch these Roddy Danielson matches, it's like, it's kind of like this mid-tier all the way through. But it's like this nice cycle of, here's a submission. Now we're going to throw some strikes. Now here's a move. Now here's another submission. And it kind of keeps zigging when you think it's going to zag. And there's not really sections. Like, it does get more intense in the last 10, 20 minutes, you know, it does kind of change a bit where the moves get a little bit bigger. The near falls get a little bit bigger. And around that point where Danielson starts working on Roddy's leg and it starts kind of changing the way he sells. But for the most part, like, like you've mentioned how sometimes, you know, Roderick will pick things up and it feels like he's getting control and Danielson will cut him off and take it back down again. And this match, just their matches against each other have a tone and a pace and a structure that no one else in Ring of Honor up to this point really had, which I think is the really cool thing about it. Now, that does lead to one of my nitpicks of this match, which is one thing that when you do do a match where it's like, here's the 10 minutes of, of mat wrestling or five minutes of mat wrestling, and here's the more middle point, and then here's the, the two-minute strike battle, and then there's the four minutes of near falls at the end. That can sometimes become rote and predictable, but one thing it does give a match is it kind of gives it like a real structure that feels like a match is moving on and progressing. I will say at 47 minutes, until they get to that final 10 or 20 minutes where Danielson starts working on Roderick's leg, there is a point, and it's very minor to me, but there is a point where I kind of felt like you're kind of hitting the same pace and the same tone for you've done this for quite a while, guys. Like I kind of felt like stretching out this long, you probably could have, for my taste, cut out five or ten minutes of that point of the match, just because they were, even though they, everything they were doing was great, they were kind of hitting the same notes over and over again, and then they kind of start shifting a bit. But this was absolutely great, and my favorite parts of the match, I actually think, in some ways, were the first ten or twenty minutes of the match, because, like you mentioned, the first match. It's um, it's really Danielson's match, and he's just dominating s- strong. And this match is a lot like that, but the first 10 or 20 minutes is where it's a bit more, I would say, is the most different it is from the first match in a lot of ways because it's where Roddy shows a lot more kind of pushback. He's not putting up with Danielson shit as much. Like before the match even starts, he and Danielson shake hands and Danielson does the thing he does in the first match, which is after they shake hands, he immediately slaps Roderick in the face. But this time, like Roderick does not put up with that. Like he immediately goes after Danielson and starts the fight before the bell can even ring. Like later on, Danielson does another thing he did in the first match where he has Roderick in the corner. And instead of doing a clean break, he just grinds his head into strong. But again, this time Roderick doesn't put up with it. He just goes after him. Like you mentioned, um, 
he does the I have till five thing back to Danielson. Like a lot of this, a lot of my favorite parts in this match are basically Roderick being like, I'm not going to let you push me around like you did in the first match. Even like when Danielson builds to this outside, eventually one of those times Roderick finds like, fuck it, I'm just going to chase you. And that's what leads to that section you talked about where Roderick brawls with him in the ringside and body slams him on the ramp. And I really liked all that stuff, all that stuff. And I felt like after the first 10 or 20 minutes, they, it kind of became more of just the first match where it was Danielson kind of eating up Roderick, where it's every time Roderick hits a big move, Danielson's never too far away from cutting him off and taking control for another few minutes. And it's great. And I like that. And I kind of like Roderick being the underdog. I think that's a role he does really well at, especially because his offense is so big. He often only needs one or two moves to make you feel like he swung the match back. But it did just kind of feel like them hitting the notes that they had already done when they had shown the first 10, 20 minutes, there was an interesting way they could build on, on that first match. And I, I could have done with more of that. And likewise, Another one of my favorite things of this match is this crowd, more than the first match, really it felt like, like you mentioned how they were on Roderick's side more on this match. They were. I also felt like in this match, a significant part of the crowd kind of thought that Roderick could win. Like they were really popping for Roderick's near falls. I think some of those people really thought maybe Roderick, you know, he had been pushed fairly hard this year. He won the survival of the fittest. He got to be the one guy who beat Matt Hardy in his short ring of honor stand. He got, you know, to be uh Gibson's going away match. I think some fans actually thought maybe he's going to win this. And because of that, every one of Roderick's near falls is really hot. Even on stuff. I thought, wow, I was shocked. It got that much of a reaction. And I felt like Roderick could have had more near falls. Like, as hot as the crowd was, they could have really taken advantage of that and had him do, had him do a few more near falls for my liking, but they didn't. Uh, and then finally, the end. I really like the elbow ref stop stoppage finish. It's an influence by like Gary Goodridge from an early UFC. The one thing it could have been a little better for my taste is to me the whole point of that finish about a ref stop finish is the idea that. This guy is just not completely unconscious. If you watch the match, Danielson doesn't really have the crucifix locked on super tight. The elbows look really good. And and Roderick doesn't – like he's kind of selling right near the end that he's almost like kind of shifting out of it when the ref calls the bell, even though the elbows look really vicious. And I feel like to really sell a ref stoppage, I would have liked if, if Roderick was just completely limp, even though I know that can be hard to do when a guy's throwing these – worked elbows at you and really locked in tight. Like the idea just that, like if you watch the UFC finish that Brian is clearly inspired by, like this guy is just completely screwed. There's no way out for him. And he is unconscious when, and, and Goodrich still hits like another few elbows, which is what makes it just so brutal and almost disturbing to see. So my last thing I would say is comparing this to the first match, what this reminds me of is when we were doing our um, end of the year, giving our first honor awards away at the end of a 2002 Ring of Honor, you put on um, a low key versus Brian Danielson as match of the year. And my head agreed with you. My head was like, technically, that was the best match we had saw each year, I mean, of the year. And I felt almost guilty that I liked um, low key versus Brian Danielson versus, um, Christopher Daniels from the era of honor begins the main event of the first show more, but because I knew why I liked it more was just a personal thing. It was just 
I have the nostalgia. It's such a unique match compared to the other great matches of Ring of Honor that year. It's such an important match. I love the statement it made going being booked ahead of a after a Eddie Guerrero versus Super Crazy. And it was like my heart thought that match was better, but my head was like Matt is right. The other match is better, and I went with my heart. And I would say I have a similar thing here where my head knows this match is better than the match these guys had a week earlier. It's it's longer. There's more action. The near falls are better. It has a better finish. There's just it, it's, it's a better version of the first match. But my heart likes that other match better just because you kept stressing this match how you felt like this was the match where, you know, like you really, really hit home for you. Like, oh, Danielson's already like this fully realized what he, you know, this this whole new character so quickly. To me... That's what why I was so enthusiastic about that first match, which I was shocked revisiting it, how everything comes together in that match and how the joy of seeing a guy kind of discover this whole new character that we know now will end up becoming a character he plays for on and off for like the rest of his career. And I have a fondness because of that. And I feel like, and you can see the joy as he discovers that in that match. And I feel like there isn't really anything in this match that he isn't d- discovering in that, in that match a week earlier. The one thing he adds, I think the one thing that's really historical about this match is it's the first time he does the best in the world stuff. I think if I'm uh, and Daniel and crazy, he does, he mentions it a couple of times, including after the match, he tells each side of the crowd, you know, best in the world. It's the first time. It's the first time he tell, he stops the ref during the introduction to tell him to say it. I know that. Yeah, he makes – yeah, you're right. I'm glad you remember that because I forgot. Yeah, he even makes – yeah, Bobby Cruz announced him as best in the world. Prezak at the end of the match is like, e, well, I guess he is the best in the world. Like he really leans – that. that's the one new – I think that's like the last piece because he already had the I have till five. He had the basic swagger and character. It was like the last piece other than maybe timing his jump to the turnbuckle when the final countdown sings the title line. He hasn't started doing that yet, but really this was like the last little other piece that had to fall into place. And it comes in right on this show, but absolutely. It's a great match. I almost feel uh, you're right. I did not like it quite as much as you, but it's one of those weird matches where usually I don't feel guilty. I don't like matches (laughs) quite as much as you. This is a match that's so good. I almost feel guilty. And your review was so good. It's the rare match where like Danielson, I mean, low key, I'm like, man, Maybe I should just like this as much as you. <laughs> it's a very Trevor thing to say. Now, I um, I uh, I kind of had a hunch just based on how much you liked that first match that it would kind of hold a more special place in your heart. But listen, I, I'm giving myself away right here. Like anybody listening, you know what my top two matches of 2005 are going to be. Like I mean, it's this one and Joe um, in some order. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, uh, I mean this 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 is it for me. Like I, I just it's a big deal match for me. Yeah, I mean, it it is a great match. A match people should go out of their way to see. Um, There's so many great moments. I love when Danielson bails out early and he yells at fans like, you know, Danielson continues to really have a lot of fun with the crowd. And at one point, for some reason, this made me laugh, even though it's such a basic line. He's just like, I I could stay out here all night long. And I just start to imagine, like, what if Brian Danielson really did do that? And, like, it just started making me laugh. Like, Well, you know know that he wanted to with that Aries match, right, the three-hour match. Like, you know that's something that he probably still wants to try at some point. Yeah, I mean, there was a recent interview with Danielson where he even said something like he was like, he said something like, I want to test my physical limits and I want to see how long I can go in the ring because he was talking about 
questions about the Adam um Adam Page match that went an hour. And I was like, oh, there's still a bit. I, I, I'm telling you, there's somewhere still in Danielson. There's still that guy who wants to try working a nearly three hour long match. Like that's why he, that's why he liked the, the, the wrestling in front of empty, in empty buildings during the pandemic. Uh, because like, it's because he's like, man, I could really do this three hour match right now, but he wasn't in a place where he could have done it. Maybe, maybe he's going to tell Tony Khan, like still, you know what? Even now your TV tapings, they need to be with empty crowds. And I'm going to work a match that lasts three episodes of this show. He needs to work an AEW Dark where the whole show is just him versus like Aaron Solo. <laughs> no, but I really do think like – Well, now I need I to see that. I don't know if Danielson's you know, contract allows this, but I really do feel like one of my wishes for – because I think this is probably like a secret – well, not even a secret. I, it's been established. He, he's kind of wanted to do this. I feel like someone out there, some indie, should book – I mean, Dr. Keith, if you're listening, get on the horn. I should book like Jonathan Gresham versus Danielson and just tell Danielson, I know you used to want to do this. Like, how about we just give you the whole show? Like, go nuts. Try and make a match three hours long work. And I'm sure Brian would love the chance to do it. And honestly, would it be as good as any dream match done at a more appropriate length? Probably not. But I would be fascinated to see him actually be put to the test to have to, to finally call his bluff match. Like go, you know what you, you want to try doing this once you go do it. Yeah. Show us. I'm, I'm fully on board. There's yeah. no reason why that should not happen at this point. Like we, we do everything, we do every other fucking thing in wrestling now. Like everything has been tried. The three hour match. I still don't think it's been tried. Um, let's do it. Yeah. And, and, and let's do it. And, le- and let's, let's, let's go for it. Let's make it one fall. No, I'm just kidding. Um, cause, <laughs> cause originally his idea with Aries was three falls, right? And each one would be like an hour and like two would go to the hour time limit, right? Yeah. It's like, he could try that, but like a one fall three hour match might even be even more fun. I don't know. But you know what? Danielson will figure it out. I, I have faith. Um, but do, do, should I read, um, what he wrote about this match? Yeah. Go, go ahead. So from, this was uh, from, autobiography. yeah, this was from, yes, my improbable journey to the main event of WrestleMania by Daniel Bryan with Craig Tello. Um, so, uh, Trevor had read, uh, in the This Means War, uh, episode, um, from the book, from like right before this, about the, uh, the, the finish and the booking of the, of the first match. So this is what he says about the second match. Uh, he says, weeks later, and of course it actually was one week later, um, our rematch had a different buzz about it. And Roderick had gained even more support from the fans. The entire match was aggressive and hard-hitting. Even though the scars hadn't healed from the first match, he chopped me until my chest was bleeding again. Finally, I beat Roderick by putting him in a crucifix and elbowing him until he was knocked out, an idea I got from a Gary Goodridge fight in UFC. The referee had to stop me from elbowing Roderick after he was knocked out, and in one night we created a new way a match could end in ROH. A referee stoppage. The fans didn't understand it at first, and some were pissed off. But you have to take chances sometimes, and this one made my matches ahead much more interesting. When I competed in Ring of Honor, my character was much different than how I've become to be known in WWE. Within WWE, I've constantly been portrayed as an underdog. In ROH, I wasn't a small guy compared to the others, compared to the other guys, especially those last couple of years when I was the top guy. Whomever I was facing was actually the underdog. One of the more popular things people would chant over and over again toward my opponent was, you're going to get your fucking head kicked in. It originated in England for soccer and got popular for wrestling in Ring of Honor. 
My style was more technical wrestling, but brutal, incorporating a lot of MMA movements into what I did, like the repeated elbows or repeated stomps to the skull. Ring of, Ring of Honor's crowd saw me as a badass with a big beard and a shaved head. Well, that, that big beard and shaved head was for pretty short-lived in ROH, mm-hmm. to be fair. But, you know, it's interesting because now he's back not being an underdog again. And it's funny because, like, yeah, he is... He was he was really good as an underdog. I lo- I loved his WWE stuff. I don't I'm not one of the people that shits on his run there like in terms of like what he did. Not not necessarily in terms of how he was booked the whole time. But yeah, he's better as the dominant guy. Like it, it just makes a lot more sense for him. And thinking about it in ROH, there were very few matches where Danielson was presented as the underdog. The obvious ones that stick out to me are the Morishima matches. Yeah. But I can't think of too many more matches, honestly. Maybe a couple of the Nigel matches later on where Nigel was like a full-on heel. But in general, uh, Danielson was the dominant guy. And like, he's, he's great in that role. And I'm, I never thought I'd get to see him do it again. So it's really cool that AEW is having him be that guy again. That's honestly the best part of his comeback run because I completely agree. Like that's the not even a dirty little secret I would say, but like that's the, the the thing about Danielson is he's actually way better as like the front runner and the favorite in matches and the guy who's kind of controlling. And in WWE, even though I agree his work was great there, but yeah, I completely agree with you. It, it was kind of sad to see him always stuck in that same character because in WWE. No matter how hard they push an undersized guy, they will only push them as some flavor of the underdog, you know, to, to some degree or another. And that's why, like, even when Low-Key went to uh, WWE, and obviously that went horrible for him, but even when people were like, maybe they could get him pushed, I was always like, even if they did push him, they would never push him as the low key, I actually like seeing because, you know, they would have to try and make him the underdog and maybe low key could figure out a way to work engaging matches that way. But just because you're small doesn't always mean your best suited style is the underdog. Like some small guys are great at kicking ass. And it's just sad that for so many years, he wasn't allowed to really do what I think you and I agree is the thing he did absolutely the best. Yeah, Vince McMahon just will never see things that way. I do wonder, like, if if Danielson had been able to like go to NXT for a little while at the peak of NXT, if he would have been able to play some version of this character. But probably not even there. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's also fascinating. You know, again, one of the things I love about Danielson the idea that like he would never settle for just having one finisher be over one type of finish. Like, you know, he would always. I mean, I always talk about this. He got the airplane spin super over. Now he's just tossing that away because a lot of wrestlers, if they discovered an airplane spin type move that got such big reactions every show, they'd be like, I got to do that the rest of my life, every match. And now he's like, screw that. Screw the cat of mutilation. Like, I've got to get something new over. I want to try something different. He was always restless like that, which I think is really cool. Um, it's what it's, I mean, it's, it's a trait that, um, is consistent in a lot of the greatest artists. Like you're never, you're just not, you're not going to be satisfied with a pat hand. Like you want to find something new because you're an artist and like you're creative and creativity is what drives you. Um, we have a few other comments, uh, listener, uh, supersonic, AKA Rick Kobos, AKA the lapsed robot. He sent us, he now does uh, reviews of these early ring of honor shows for, uh, PW ponderings. He sent us a lengthy, thing of the show and we always love whether we use a little or none of it when we get live reports or or live thoughts and i got took a little snippet from him here that i thought was appropriate he wrote 
But to this day, the 47-minute Ring of Honor title match between Brian Danielson and Roderick Strong remains the greatest match I've ever seen in person. This match is my pick for the greatest facial expression expressions of Danielson's Hall of Famer career. And I agree, like, this is another, that's another thing I just, I thought Danielson's facial expressions in this match were really, really good. Like, even moments like where he's in a submission where he finds a way to look in pain, but also angry at the same time that a submission is even being done to him. I just noticed little things like that. I thought were really good, but then going to the observer and this is where we get to something I think I alluded to on their last match that we would get to. This is uh, it, it's, it's, it's time Matt to uh, criticize the criticizers again. So we'll, we'll go to first the observer. Dave Meltzer wrote, Brian Danielson beat Roderick Strong in the match they were supposed to do last week, going 47 minutes, 25 seconds. The idea was to make everyone think they were going 60 minutes, but not, so people will believe a long match can end at any time. Strong was bleeding from the face and mouth and being hit by elbows from the top by Danielson until the ref stopped it as Strong was out. Danielson's chest bleeding from the match last week and this week. Missing a word there, Dave. Uh, Danielson worked as a heel champion again, and they held back as Strong didn't even use one backbreaker backbreaker until the 34-minute mark. I heard people who totally loved the match and others who just liked it. And then we go to figure four. World title match was weird. Brian Alvarez, Brian Alvarez writes, they did a match last week and it quote-unquote got out of control. They quote-unquote went home early or whatever, were quote-unquote pissed off at each other and stormed to the back. Ring of Honor then announced they were doing the rematch, I guess, to either A, let the men have the match they wanted to have, or B, to let the men go at it, quote-unquote, for real, after, quote-unquote, fake match, after the fake match got fucked up. Pick your poison. I will say that what they did here, long match ending with a KO finish, was what I believe the plan was for the original match, which, for whatever reason, didn't go down as planned. All that matters was that they beat the fuck out of each other, and it was apparently really, really great. So we talked about this on the This Means More This Means War show. Danielson went into it in his book. We read the excerpt. The, the the ending for the first match was always the planned ending. So it's funny, it's interesting to read like that they really did fool the newsletter writers because even Brian, who's definitely seems with all the quote unquotes being sus- suspicious of it, even he kind of parrots the line of, well, this was the finish they originally wanted to do in the first match, which again, you read Brian's book. You know, Gabe outright asked them to to use that that um abrupt like crossface submission that he apparently first used as a shoot on Strong in a hotel room as a finish for their match. So like, it's funny that they somehow they didn't quite convince. Reading all the media from back then, they didn't quite convince everyone like for sure like oh the first match ended in a shoot, but they definitely seemed to convince a lot of people that. This match is the, – the first match's finish was not the intended finish. Which they convinced I, people I, that were not big ROH fans. I remember being on the ROH board back then. None of us believed that shit. Like we, like, like, like we just thought like this was a rematch. They went 10 minutes longer. Then they're going to wrestle again in at a Supercard of Honor, and they're going to go 10 minutes longer than that. Like it's, like it's not that complicated. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's interesting because I always feel like it was a lot easier for – and still is a lot easier for smaller companies like Ring of Honor – to work the newsletter guys than it would be for like, not that they haven't also done this, but like the WWE or AEW because 
you know, they're just going to they're watching it less. They're paying less attention to it. They have probably less sources there in some respects. And so they're just going to take more of people's word of mouth stuff. They're just like, oh, Gabe said it wasn't the right finish. Oh, okay, I guess it wasn't. But, you know, yeah, if you're if you're a hardcore fan, like on the message boards like us watching every show, I think you were more suspicious, probably. Um, we go backstage and find Allison Danger and Christopher Daniels. Daniel. Oh, wait, first, I got to go to uh, what happened after the match. First off, Prezak ends by saying Danielson truly is the best wrestler in the world. Something Brian screams to each side of the ring. Brian then shakes an unconscious Strong's head only to stomp him again. Real dick move. Brian leaves, and then they really linger on Roderick afterwards, who eventually struggles to his feet. He gets a nice ovation. Thank you, Roderick Chance. So it really did feel like he got a bit more over, even in losing it was one of those kinds of matches. When it comes now, to when it comes to oh, when it comes to shaking Roderick's hand and stomping him again, it is it's just so neat to see like everything just being done again. You know, like Danielson's just doing that now like that's just what he does in our in, in AEW now like he did it with against the match against Daniels it's just like he's bringing back the classics and it's and what's old is new again because it's been so long since we've seen it like watching Danielson in, in AEW and CM Punk especially with the tribute he did on the, uh, on the recent pay-per-view like do you feel like Matt I know it, it, it kind of feels almost crazy like I've never felt I don't think I've ever had a piece of media I consume feel like they were catering so specifically and strongly to my niche. Like they found the exact button that I have in my brain to push and they're just hammering it. Like it's like, I almost feel bad sometimes. Cause I know there are some people that like they, even people that aren't, I know you were like, you didn't see a much of the, uh, the people that were kind of annoyed or going, Oh, this isn't too insider reference. But I feel like even the people that don't get it, like we've got a number of references, people tweeting at least to me afterwards that were like, Oh, I got punk coming out in his old gear and that in the AFI song, but only cause I listened to through the years, which one, thank you Two, that makes me feel old. But, um, I, I almost feel guilty watching cause it's like, man, they are really just hammering like the nostalgia that a very specific group of people of a place in time have. And it just happens to be you and me. Well, they're, they're clearly uh, on our payroll because pretty much <laughs> AEW for the past like seven months has been basically just promoting our podcast and making it way more relevant than it should be. So thank <laughs> you, I guess to uh, AEW, but um, yeah, I, I, it's weird. It's definitely really weird how all of a sudden, like since like last summer, it's just been, like classic ROH has just been on the minds of everybody again. I mean, it's always been on my mind because it, you know, it's such a special <laughs> time as a, as a fan for me, you know, going all those shows. So, um, Hey, uh, welcome to the party, everybody. I guess that's what I'll say. Yeah. There's so many weird coincidences like, AEW brings in William Regal and he forms a partnership with Brian Danielson literally as we are days away from recording a show covering a match where Brian Danielson says William Regal can't lace my boots. Like it's just yeah. crazy things like that crazy. keep happening. I can't imagine but, how Gabe Sapolsky feels because like all of this stuff was like his baby, you know, um, you know, and, and, and I feel like I mean he should be mentioned more. I, I, I mentioned this on the last show, so I'm not going to go into a rant about it, but like it's got to be got to be surreal for him. Yeah, it's got to be it's got to be weird. Like any time the thing you've made has now reached like the long enough distance where you we are now entering the nostalgia era. And especially in his case, where like the nostalgia, the nostalgia is bigger than it was when it was happening. You know, like, like people are seeing the AFI interest, like millions are seeing it now versus thousands when it happened in, back in the day. Like it's got, it's gotta be a weird, almost pro I'm probably imagine a bittersweet you yeah. know, feeling seeing that. 
Yeah, like, yes, I would say so. I don't want to try to get into his head too yeah, much, but okay. I can imagine it being bittersweet, yes. Uh, so we go backstage and find Alice in Danger and Christopher Daniels. Daniels says he and Samoa Joe have now faced each other three times in Ring of Honor, in singles matches in Ring of Honor, and three times Joe has won. Daniel starts saying that this won't be the end of their story when Lacey, BJ Whitmer, and Jimmy Jacobs interrupt, with Lacey calling Daniels a typical stupid male, which seems offensive when she's got two other guys right by her side, but okay. Uh, BJ says he could have used, Daniels could have used some of that help he once turned his back on tonight. Daniel says he does, he never turned his back on anybody. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know what BJ is talking about. BJ says, you'll see soon enough, Chris. And then they walk away, and just like the last time a promo like this happened, Daniels is just so confused as Lacey's Angels walk away. He doesn't know what BJ's alluding to, what the problems are, even though it seems pretty obvious what BJ's problem was. It was that Christopher yes. Daniels left in the middle of the Prophecy uh, Second City Saints feud to go to the TNA during the Rob Feinstein scandal, and like they lost the feud and he wasn't around for a year. But I like that Daniels keeps like, I didn't turn my back on anybody. I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah. I mean, they probably should have just had BJ just like say it in a promo instead of like, just like alluding to it a little bit. But like, you know, the idea is like, I think just like with Jacobs, like Lacey is planting the seeds. Yeah. Right. And that brings us to the main event, an eight man war tag team match. I don't know really what differentiates an eight man war from a regular eight man match, but we got a special eight man war graphic on the screen for it. The embassy of Abyss, Alex Shelley, Jimmy Rave, and Prince Nana defeated AJ Styles and Generation Next of Austin Aries, Jack Evans, and Matt Seidel, who were escorted to the ring by Daisy Hayes and Jay Chung. In 22 minutes, 28 seconds, when Jimmy Rafe and Alex Shelley scored a double pin, pinning Matt Seidel and Austin Aries, respectively, after hitting the greetings from Ghana and an air raid crash, respectively. And yes, this would be the debut of the new finisher um, Jimmy Rafe had been teasing for show a bunch of shows now. Greetings from Ghana, a.k.a. The Pedigree, which was a perfect choice as a trolling heel move, especially after he had just already stolen AJ Styles' Styles Clash. So. As a main event, um, I thought this was a low, very good, but I thought it was a, a little disappointing as a main event for two reasons. And again, maybe the theme of the show is my expectations because one, it was having to follow a hell of an amazing, great match. So that was a little bit rough on it. And two, I feel like the match these guys had in, I believe it was Buffalo or it might have been Long Island, one of those cities, the, the big tag match that went was like no DQ and brawl all over the place. That match was a lot crazier than this match. I think this match probably has a better, more traditional structure, but that match, you know, it had Jack Evans doing flying off the top of a batting cage. It had ladder spots. It had just everyone brawling all over the building. That match seemed a lot more intense and crazy where this just feels more like a good eight man tag with one gimmick spot near the end where AJ Styles, um, German suplexes, uh, abyss through a table that's in the corner. But the structure of this match is good. It's, uh, the star of the match, Jimmy Rave, gets totally singled out on, on his team, and Generation Next isolates him in their corner, and they just take turns being the crap out of him, which is nice. To, it's nice sometimes that we're like, to get an early point of a match where like the heel gets kind of his just desserts early. I like that. And it makes for a fun moment where, Jimmy Ray finally kind of gets to the position to make a hot tag, but only uh, Nana is on the apron available for it. And Nana drops to the apron and just like refuses to make the tag, which again sells that he's a chicken shit. He's, he's only going to come in when he has the advantage again, kind of like the Chad Collier thing earlier. And um, 
then after that, we get a section where Jack Evans is the face in peril, which, you know, he's great at. And then we finally get our final few minutes of bigger action where everyone's trading stuff. But again, it's not as big as these teams have had before. It's not quite as big as I would expect for a match in the main event slot. Like to me, this whole match felt like a really good mid card eight man tag that got put in the main event. And of course the end is the big plot development where, um, Nana drags Daisy Hayes in the ring by her hair and you think, Oh shit, he's going to attack her. And Ares and Seidel go to save her from Nana. And then after they save her, Daisy Hayes turns. She gives them a low blow from behind. She is now a member of the embassy. The embassy then get the win after the moves they scored. And, uh, Oh yeah, um, and, and Jay Chung before that though tries to attack Daisy. They get into like a bit of a fight, but Daisy's able, Nana helps, um, Daisy get control and Daisy lays her out with the Daisy cutter. And yeah, it, it, it's a good match. I know some people didn't like the overbooking of that, uh, but you know, it was, it was, it spiced things up to me that turn gave the embassy excuse to win. And there was something at stake. This was a match where instead of having doing a coin toss for the upcoming steel cage warfare war came, war games type match the idea was this the winner of this match got to have the man advantage so i did like they also gave this match some real stakes but overall pretty good match but i thought i think these guys could go even crazier in my opinion i think this is another match i did like more than you you said this was a low very good i thought it was a high very good not quite great but a a high very good i i thought i just thought they really kept it moving and you know it did remind me of the uh World title classic where they put ultimate endurance on after the first Joe versus Punk uh, time limit draw. And it's like, damn, how do you follow that? Because, yeah, I mean, that, that Danielson versus Strong match was like epic and exhausting. And now they have to follow it. But I thought they did a good job of keeping the crowd. Like, at no point did I feel like this crowd was just drained, you know? Like, I felt like they cared about these characters. And, um, yeah, they definitely were holding back. For sure, um, in some ways, they didn't do everything they did in that Buffalo match, and they don't do everything they're going to do in the Steel Cage Warfare. But besides the story, I also I just thought that the the wrestling looked good. You know, like they like there was just a lot of cool action. Like they didn't, again, they didn't do everything, but they, you know, Evans did his space flying tiger drop twisty splash onto Abyss. I forget. Is there a name for that? Whereas he does the t- space flying tiger drop, but it's a twisty splash. I know, the spiral spiral tap. Well, no, no, no. Oh, wait, the no, no. oh, the Evans one. No, yeah, yeah. I mixed them up in my head. Yeah. God, I keep make, mixing them up lately in my notes too. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I, I don't remember. If there's a name yeah, for that. There was also another thing. Where, like, I thought AJ looked pretty good here. Like, you know, again, he doesn't do everything, but like leapfrogging over Abyss. Like, damn. Like that. Even that's just like a really cool spot. Um, I, 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 so like the whole thing where the winner gets the uh, the advantage in Steel Cage Warfare, I thought was funny because at one point Leonard's like. You know, because on ROH, we don't flip coins. We wrestle to find out who has the advantage. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm like, keep that in mind when we have Cage of Death next year. Just try – just keep it in mind. I, I don't remember what they did for that, but I, I thought I remembered a coin toss. But maybe I'm also, wrong. Maybe what's I'm wrong. wrong with flipping a coin? Like, like the disdain he had in his voice when he said that. I'm glad you brought that up. Like he was like, we don't flip coins in the Ring of Honor. It's like <laughs> they flip a coin before the Super Bowl. Like, coin, like coin, what? Coin, coins are such sports entertainment. You know what I mean? <laughs> this is this is wrestling as a sport. Um, but um, yeah, no, I thought I thought Shelly was was a lot of fun here. I thought Nana did a good job for what it's worth. You know, like with his stooging and then getting in and doing some of his moves. I will say this. 
the finish got over with me because I completely forgot about the Daisy Hay seal turn. Me too. Like, like I didn't remember that ever happened. And I don't really remember what she does as part of the embassy, so I'm curious to see. I know that heretofore she had not been um, booked on the East Coast. Right, like she wasn't with yeah. Seidel, so like I'm not sure if they bring her out east now or if they wait till they go back to Ohio to bring her back. But I have no memory of Daisy Hayes in the embassy, so I'm curious to see how that goes. Um, so that 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 popped me because I'm like, oh, a th- I guess an angle that I didn't remember, like in a big match, cool. Um, but I thought, you know, I thought the match was wild enough and, and moved enough. The one thing I noticed, though, did you notice that the the weird edit? What was the edit here? I forget. What was it? Okay, so let me let me find this in my notes. Okay, so there's a spot where everyone is is beating on Rave. Like they they do that at the very beginning, and then they kind of they they do a, like a, a some spots with abyss and some dives, and then they go back they go back in and settle back down, and everyone's attacking Rave again. And Evans does some cool sequences. Uh, Evans call uh, Leonard calls it a springboard flippity kick, and we get a, <laughs> we get another. This is awesome chant. So even just on this show, we're already that chant is gratuitous. I'm already done with it. No more. This is awesome, everybody. You've done it three times. It's enough. Um, <laughs> and then Nana knocks Evans off the top rope during a springboard, and Abyss takes him out to the floor. And we see Rave in the on the ground in the ring. And then suddenly they cut to a close up of Nana. And then the next thing you know, we see Alex Shelley in the ring working on Jack Evans. We never see Evans get back in the ring. We never see Rave tag out. And Rave is just like standing on the apron, like chilling, while uh, while Shelly is working on Evans. So I'm I wonder what happened that made them want to cut that out. So I may have an answer. I am not 100 percent sure. I I kind of assumed when when I put this in my notes that this happened after the match, but maybe it didn't. I'll I'll um I'll just drop it in here. So this is from the Observer. Dave wrote, a fan challenged AJ Styles, and Styles told him to hop the rail. He did. Then faster than you can say, bare knuckle beat down, security took the guy out. Samoa Joe came out and was quite angry, but it was taken care of before he got there. So maybe that actually happened during the match, maybe. I guess that's possible. Um, Dr. Key will speak to that in our, yes. in his, uh, po- in his post show recap. But, um, yeah, I thought that edit was strange, you know, noticeable to me. But otherwise, I really enjoyed this. Like, I, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was a quite good match. Yeah, maybe it would have been better in the mid card and then you main event with the super epic classic. But, um, that's not what they did. And I thought this, this ended up, uh, comporting itself pretty well considering the position it was put in. Definitely. Uh, after the match, uh, the embassy celebrated together, including Daisy Hayes, who really taunts Generation X. So just to confirm, you know, definitely like she's not just turning on them. She's joining the embassy. And we then we cut to the building after the show. We're still in the building, but the lights are up. The ring is being taken down. All the fans are gone. It's just the students taking it down. And Colt Cabana, who's looking very angry, and he has a big bandage on his forehead from the cut earlier. Colt says Ring of Honor and Chicago are his two homes, and he admits he said some words Homicide didn't like. Maybe there was some street ethics, Colt says, that I didn't understand, things that shouldn't have been said. But Colt says he's a pro wrestler, and nowhere in pro wrestling does it say chairs, tables, duct tape, forks, and scissors. No, Colt, no, what, no one in wrestling should use chairs. What, like, what, what is this? <laughs> this is professional wrestling. We don't use chairs in wrestling. Colt had literally just put Homicide through a table the night before. Um, 
Colt wonders where it stops, and he points to his bruised and marked-up eye. Colt says something clicks when a man bleeds and tastes his own blood. He starts getting screamy, and he re- as he recaps what happened uh, tonight, how Homicide tried to cut out his tongue. Colt is really screaming now. He says he doesn't need his tongue. He can do his fighting with his soul, his fists, his heart. He throws a chair, and then we see the cameraman kind of fall down, I guess, or Colt kind of stands above him, looking menacingly, and and Colt says, if Homicide wants a war, he has one. He's not afraid of anyone, and he ends by saying, this is a new side of Colt Cabana. So, a lot of people have different opinions on the Colt Cabana, kind of the character he's entering at this point for the Homicide feud, which is definitely a different role. Colt has very rarely in his career been asked to play, like, the super angry, serious guy. Um, for, I know some people really don't like it. Some people think it's not the best stuff he's ever done. I often veer back and forth within the same promos because I feel like Colt can kind of straddle the line between too over the top and just the right amount over top. And I feel like almost from a like a line by line, my opinion can change because sometimes even during this promos, like you're hamming up a bit, you're going a bit too big. And there are other times where I'm like, no, actually, this is actually really good. And I, what, I wonder what you – I'm curious to hear what you think about this kind of stuff. Well, first of all, I think it's good and necessary that somebody who's at the stature of Colt Cabana, who's had the career that he has, that he did something like this at some point. Yeah. You know, like I don't I don't think this should be his default and it never was, but like the, the idea that he would go through a career and never try to be serious and intense, like I mean that's – you know, this, this is pro wrestling. Of course you got to do that if you really want to establish like a legacy and like – just like establish yourself as like a well-rounded performer. So it's good that he did this. I think he eventually cut some really good promos in this mode. I don't think this was one of them. Like I think that this was like the first time he really did this and like he was stammering and like that's obviously part of the hamming it up that you mentioned. But also like I do think like he just legitimately had a hard time collecting his words here. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't think it was all performance. Like, I think it was like he was trying to say something that he couldn't really articulate all the time. Um, so I think the words didn't match the Im- frantic emotion that he was trying to show. I thought the emotion was really good. I thought the words of the promo, like the actual verbiage, was not that good. Um, but I think he does get there. And I think this was a necessary thing for him to do, and it's a good progression. And I did like the way it ended, and I did like that he was trying to create this tone. And I think he did a good job with the tone, if not the actual like things that he said, if that makes sense. Um, there's a promo he cuts on a DVD right before the final match with Homicide, uh, uh, the uh, the Chicago fight without honor or whatever, the Chicago street fight, whatever the gimmick was that they did. Um, I think that's more fully realized in this. But it's a start, and hey, you got to start somewhere, right? So I appreciate that he did it. Yeah, and I would say, like, if you're a big Colt Cabana fan, I imagine you've probably seen this stuff, but for some reason you haven't. I would say it's almost required watching even stuff like this, just because, like you were kind of alluding to, you really don't get to see much of Colt ever do this in his entire career. So, you know, it, it's it's worth it, I think, going out of your way. Even if, even if it turns out you do are one of the people that didn't like it, it's just – it's something very unique in his career that's happening right starting at the, around this point. Um. And then finally we end the show. We get a clip of something I that I don't know. Uh, I don't know what. I can barely make it out. It's nearly pitch black. A gay voiceover tells us that cameras didn't catch it, but Roderick Strong and Jade Chung were attacked in the parking lot, and Jade is injured. Gabe says we will have an update on the next Ring of Honor home release. 
Brian Alvarez wrote on the figure four. Uh, they did a post-match deal in Chicago where Jimmy Rave gave, gave Jade Chung a pedigree on the cement, his new finisher, which of course draws him a ton of heat. And the storyline is that she's out with a broken cheekbone. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I was listening to, on an honorable mention, uh, Shane Hagedorn, he doesn't know this for sure, but he had, uh, I think he was talking about like theories about people out of this match. He was talking about maybe that, it, and it does look like you could barely make out it's Jay Chung and like Ronald Strong on the cement outside that maybe this was filmed and it was too dark and they decided instead just to like give a vocal summary of it like Gabe just did. I, I've been watching. I've been watching ROH DVDs. That is not a decision they make. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say I could come by until I realized the idea that Ring of Honor would ever shy away from a a chance to show a man getting hurting a woman and b uh, saying oh something shot too darkly for Ring of Honor <laughs> like no and no <laughs> neither of those would would ever stop Ring of Honor but. Matt, all right, you wanted to ask another example of ang- – this isn't necessarily the same angle being repeated, but how many times in Ring of Honor have we now seen or are going to see a woman getting written out by getting a horrifying attack that usually often isn't shown, but it's so horrible it takes them out of the wrestling business, and then sometimes they come back for one last revenge spot because twice. it happened – The answer is it happened, with, <laughs> it happened with Lucifer, uh, a.k.a. Daphne, rest in peace. It happens here – um, Tracy Brooks, didn't she get written out somehow like with a big attack hmm. and won't it, to some degree it happens with Lacey with, uh, age of the fall. Doesn't it? I mean, I don't remember the Tracy Brooks one. Um, but you I'm, know, you're probably right. I'm just saying it seems to happen a lot in Ring of Honor that it happens at least women, twice, at least twice. Yeah. If nothing else, this is note for note, the Daphne angle basically in, in some yes. ways. Yes. But Except, except, unless it would be, although I think Roderick Strong would have done not as good of a job as CM Punk as doing the thing where he interrupts everybody because he's desperate to find out who hurt um, Jade Chung. Although I guess it's yeah. not a mystery here, right? If Strong was attacked too, he probably knows who did it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they say right in the angle. It's, uh, I mean, at least Brian Alvarez had the scoop that Jimmy Rave gave a pedigree so on the cement. So either way, that brings us to the end of Vendetta. And that, you know... I want to know your thoughts, but I think it's safe to say this was a pretty damn good wrestling show. Yeah, I mean, I liked the undercard less than you did, and I liked the big matches a lot more than you did, or more than you did, maybe not a lot more. So, to me, this was, uh, those those three matches, and especially the title match, like, put this on a high level for me. Uh, one of the better shows of the past uh, few months of shows that we watched. So, um, yeah, this was, I mean, this is a must-see. I mean, not every match, but the title match, especially. And then if you're watching the Joe match in the main event, like you'll be having a good time too. So this was, yeah, it was just, I, this is great. This is a, um, I don't know if it's a show of the year contender for me. Honestly, it's probably not, but it's just a tier below that. Yeah. This is one of the better shows we've seen in months. Uh, I agree. It, it has almost everything. Like it, for me, from a good show, I want like a good up and down card, which I think, you know, this was, uh, you know, I do like the undercard, like you said, a bit more than you, but I liked it in the sense that it wasn't full of really good matches, but it was full of like matches that weren't, that were trying to entertain in other ways. Like we talked about, it has two at least very good. I think some people might find them to be great matches. I know you thought the Daniels Joe match was, but one match I can't see anyone not thinking was really great with, um, Roderick and Danielson. It, it's just, I think I had a really good crowd. I thought that was pretty into everything from top to bottom. 
and the wrestlers really seem to be having a fun night engaging with them a bit more than they would normally. The only thing you could argue this show is missing is it doesn't have that one really big, like, historical moment. Like, I guess the most important, like, I mean, the world title match is great, but even Roddy and, and Danielson, it's not their first match and it's not their last match. Um, it's a historical only- moment to me. <laughs> Yeah, it's historical because it's so good. The only thing that, that, that really of note that happens of the show is, in terms of moving things forward, I would say, would be the, the main event in the sense that you find out who gets the man advantage at Steel Cage Warfare and Daisy Hayes turns. But in the grand scheme of things, not huge developments. But, I mean, it, this show to me has pretty much everything else I want to show apart from that. And very good show. That brings us first, before we get to Dr. Keith, to our usual section of plugs. So if you want to get in contact with us, it is through the years at gmail.com, T-H-R-O-H for through. On tw- on Twitter, I am at Trevor Dame. Matt is at Mayor M-G-F. Um, we have a thread on the ProWrestlingOnly.com plugs forum. We, we always plug the feeds up top. So... Next time on the show, we will be covering A Night of Tribute, the third last show of 2005. Why is it called A Night of Tribute? Well, it took place right after Eddie Guerrero passed away, so nothing like ending a good show on a downer right now, but we all have to think about that again for a second. Uh, Christopher Daniels and Brian Danielson have a match on that show, so a rematch of, from a from a match they had on the second Ring of Honor show, a match that I really, really like. I'll be fun. It'll be fun to revisit this one. A rematch that they had almost, what, 17, 16 years later in AEW. So it's a reverse rematch. Again, the crazy coincidences that are happening and the fan service, it is a wild thing. And uh, yeah, so after my little thing, stick around because you'll be hearing a couple minutes from the good doctor himself, Dr. Keith. But from Matt and I, until next time, have a good time. Have a great time. Hello, my name is Dr. Keith Lipinski. No, I'm not a doctor. No, it's not even that good of a story. You want me to tell you it? Well, check out one of the other episodes of this lovely podcast to hear probably the full, unedited, uncensored tale of the night I danced on top of the ECW arena. No, I'm kidding, of course. It's your old friend, Dr. Keith Lipinski. Now, unfortunately, originally, I was scheduled to be on the podcast this week, and we had everything scheduled, but then real-life stuff, capitalized, got in the way. Hence, I'm not able to be on this episode with my good friends. However, I do have a little bit of a story to tell. Now, as they've probably gone through The Observer and The Figure Four Weekly, It was I, Austin, who basically put a lot of the information in those newsletters that week. However, there's something I didn't say. So after the show, I hung around the lovely Frontier Park Fieldhouse in beautiful Chicago Ridge, Illinois, home of the Chicago Ridge Mall. And I was waiting to basically go out with the boys and have a gay old time. When Samoa Joe came out and I knew something was wrong because he was looking down the floor and I believe he was wearing a beige jacket and he actually had his hands in his jacket. Something was aloof 
as what happened in the main event was AJ had challenged a guy to step over the rail. The guy stepped over the rail. Security got involved and Joe came down. I remember Joe causing a little bit of a ruckus there. And Joe came up to me and said, sorry, Dr. Keith, I'm in trouble and I cannot go out tonight. So it was one of the saddest, very, very, very much one of the saddest moments I've ever had in my Ring of Honor fandom. And now I've shared it with the world. And it's just thinking about a sad Samoa Joe makes me sad. But, you know, I'm happy that I'm able to tell this story. And I'm happy to spread the love with each and every single one of you. So I'd be even happier if you order the AAW Epic show coming up this Saturday night from the beautiful Logan Square Auditorium in Chicago, Illinois. Definitely check out AAW Pro on the Twitter, on the Instagram, on your Friendster, on all the social media outlets. And uh, thank you, gentlemen, for thinking about me once again. And more importantly, I want to thank all the listeners for me not destroying the show this week with my wit and sarcasm. So to the future, I love you all. Bye-bye.